Tune in to the Neil Prenderville Show weekdays from 9am on Cork's Red FM. There's a lot of different stories making the newspapers today uh, and of course uh, one amongst them is the um, awfully devastating uh, murder-suicide uh, uh, pact uh, that makes all of the papers uh, here in County Cork with the front page of the mirror saying absolutely devastated uh, the community um, they talked to a lot of the locals down there. Um, mother who lost her two sons and her husband in a murder horror has been left absolutely devastated. Front page of this morning's mirror today. Dad and younger son died in a suicide pact. Uh, dad and son discovered on a farm took their own lives in an apparent suicide pact. According to Gardaí, it's the front page of the sun. They go into quite an amount of detail. I'll be returning to this story a little later on this morning. In total... Um, there were three different registered and legally held shotguns involved in the events uh, in Canturk um, at, uh, at the home of uh, Tig 59, uh, Dermot 23, uh, and of course Mark uh, 26. Sorry, I should say Mark 23 and uh, Dermot 26. This morning the Echo talks about the last minutes before the triple killing the devastated wife uh, and mother has spoken with Gardie about the last minutes in her family home before fleeing to raise the alarm and she ran to neighbours who are minding her at the moment and will continue to do so. Mail this morning is speculating as to the value of the land involved. There was a dispute over a will, a dispute over land and the mail says the land at the centre of the family dispute that led to the death of a father and two brothers had an estimated value of more than Two million, and they say that this dispute had been simmering for quite some time where one brother felt that he was being cut out of his due entitlement. So more on that story. Barry Roach this morning in the Irish Times talks about um, uh, a suicide note that ran to pages and pages that was left at the scene of uh, uh, where father and son were ultimately found. I know it's it's very upsetting and disturbing to be talking about uh, stories like this, but, you know, news has to be reported, I suppose. Uh, and there's a lot of COVID-related stuff in the, in the papers. They say stuff, really. I shouldn't use the word stuff because one of the consequences, of course, of COVID and our health system is that things ground to a halt for months and months. And the examiners say that there is now 153,000 women awaiting mammograms, all because... Uh, of uh, COVID-19. This is to do with uh, a backlog because of the impact of the pandemic. Uh, tens of thousands of appointments were cancelled and they're saying now, according to the examiner, that it could take three years to clear the breast cancer backlog. These are the consequences of COVID. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of opportunity was lost across the summer, not by those working on the front line, for God's sake, but those that really were in control of our hospitals and our health service with regards to preparing for winter. Or use, I mean, we didn't actually use... We didn't actually use the private hospitals that we took over when we took them over back at the end of the spring and into the summer. There is a Cork firm now called uh, Deep Verge who are testing a COVID-19 breath test device um, and uh, they hope to have it on the market very soon and also to be an affordable mainstream consumer product for people. And that's the story that makes the papers today. Tony Houlihan says that schools are not high risk, which is kind of weird, really, when you talk about, you know, particularly secondary school, fifth years and uh, and sixth years. Uh, but he also thinks it's too dangerous uh, to travel abroad, in spite of the fact that the Mirror this morning says that holidaymakers who were surveyed um, believe and hope 
that they'll be able to get some kind of a, a spring or a summer holiday in 2021. And you got to hold on to that hope, really. And you got to hold on to that optimism. And, you know, if it's possible for you to make bookings to do things across December and up to Christmas, I would do it. You know, whether it's booking a meal out or whatever the case may be. Um, the HSE then, with their new contact tracers that they're hiring, have told the contact tracers to bring their own laptops. Do you ever feel that... This is kind of being cobbled together as we go along. And Ian Bailey makes many of the newspapers this morning because uh, the Irish courts and the Irish government are not going to appeal the court decision not to extradite, not to extradite him uh, to France for a crime, of course, that he says that he did not commit. He's quoted in the mirror this morning as saying, I'm thrilled by this decision. I don't have to worry about dying in prison for a crime I didn't commit. And um, what I think is quite poignant, actually, is that in the mirror this morning, uh, John Kerns, who covers the story this morning, was one of the first journalists at the scene back in 1996-97, covering the story uh, for the Irish Mirror even back then. So I think that's an amazing thing that, you know, here we are. How many years later? Here we are, 23 years later. Uh, and John Bocarn is still covering that story. Um, meanwhile, though, in France, um, the family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier are saying that they're going to carry on uh, with their fight uh, with regards to extraditing Mr. Bailey to France and they're going to go to the European courts. I talked, I will talk to Ian Bailey in a few minutes time. And um, the confusion regarding mother and baby homes, I probably will be coming back to this, particularly because of the Besborough connection that continues to dominate the pages of the newspapers, including the Cork City Councillor Lorna Bogue, who has quit the Green Party because of the passing of this bill, which will seal all of the testimonies uh, for 30 years. Then there's a couple of solicitors in Cork who've been in and out of the papers for months now. They're a married couple. They're former solicitors. They're before the courts accused um, of an allegation of defrauding banks out of €395,000 over a period of time. And the allegations in court include allegations that they created 60 false identities, donned disguises and wigs, and paid homeless people to allow them to use their PPS numbers to defraud banks and credit unions out of hundreds of thousands of euro. The banks and credit unions are at a loss to just under 400 grand. So that's rolling on in the core courts these days. Uh, meanwhile, the Mirror this morning tells us that almost 650,000 Irish people, amongst them 200,000 kids, are living in poverty. Um, and of course, that is a terrible, terrible statement any time, but particularly now as we head into the wintertime. And uh, there are Christmas-related stories. Uh, apparently, a lot of the old traditional gifts and toys are back in popularity uh, for Christmas 2020. And Barbie and Lego could actually run out before Christmas time. Everybody wants Barbie. Everybody's interested in Lego. Everybody's chasing down Monopoly board games and what have you. And if you didn't know it, and I think this is astonishing, do you remember that two million euro printer that they bought for the doll and then found that it was too big to put through the door? They eventually did put it through the door, broke it down, put it back together again a few years back. The infamous doll printer that cost Two million. It ended up being used to dry clothing. There was people's clothes hanging off it and coats. It was being used as a two million euro coat hanger. It still has not been used. It's still sitting there and still two million euro later, it hasn't printed a single page. The Neil Prenderville Show. Open one eight fifty one oh four one oh six text oh eight six eight one oh four one oh six to West Cork we go. Ian Bailey's my phone. Ian, good morning. 
Uh, good morning, Neil. Can is, you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, 23 years later, Ian, is this 20, the... 24 and a half years oh. later, Neil. P- pardon me, sums were never my strongest. But <laughs> but on, just on that, is this the end of it now? Are you going now to be able to get on with your own life in some way, shape or fashion? Or is there more to come? Well, um, I've, I've been trying to get on with my own life in some shape or fashion for quite a long while while this has been going on and to some degree I've succeeded. Um, in terms of answering your question directly, the legal opinion is that this is the end of the road in terms of the EAW process. Um, and quite clearly, it's significant from my point of view. It's not the end of a story, though. It's not the end of the story because there are so many questions that still have to be answered. You, you're probably aware that the uh, de Plantier family uh, are saying that they're now going to look to the European courts to try and get an extradition. Were you expecting that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, um, the, the whole the thing about this whole case is that it's totally novel. It never occurred before and it will never happen again. I'm the first person, I think, to be arrested on three occasions under an EAW and succeed in defeating that. Uh, I understand the French family and I understand their the necessity that they want closure and they want some form of justice. But by coming after me, they're, they're simply going after an innocent per- person. Um, and I'm sympathetic to them, but I, I can't really do anything about what they're going to do. Talk, talk to me about waiting for this uh, judgment to be handed down. Um, were you very nervous? Were you afraid? Well, I, that- I think I was just before November when I heard last last November, well, 12 months ago coming up, that I was going to be subjected to the third European arrest warrant. I I reacted physically and, and psychologically pretty badly. I had panic attacks and it was, had a very dark Christmas. But having said that, I I sort of picked myself up in the new year and, um, you know, I, I had to go through various procedures. We had the hearing and I, I, I had various coping mechanisms that I used to try to abate anxiety or um, fear or trepidation. In, in, in spite of whatever the French decide to do next, you you still can't leave Ireland, can you? You've never actually gone anywhere since all of this started. Talk well, to me no, a little I bit. Think the last time I travelled was in, I forget, back in the noughties sometime. Um, we managed a trip to Barcelona and then the EAW came in. And from that point on, I think in 2007, 2008, I haven't been able to leave um, Ireland. Maybe 2010, I'm not quite sure. Um Having said that, I traveled quite widely when I was a younger man and, you know, went through Europe and America and different places. And I'm actually very, very content where I am at the moment in West Cork, which is, um, as you know, astonishingly beautiful. I, absolutely. But I often, I often wondered, and I've made this point to Frank Bottomer on a number of occasions, considering what you went through and, and were put through over the years, why, why did you want to stay in the area? Why, why would you have not just up sticks and gone to another well, part of the world to restart your life? Well, while well, well, I knew this was never going to go away, and, you know, initially, in, way back, right in the days when John Kieran's was around here, when we were under siege back in 1997, you know, I got a lot of adrenaline, and you get that fight or flight um, sort of thing happening in you, and my tendency has always been to, to, to fight, not to fly. So... And that involved quite an amount of fights, wasn't it? Um, of course, there was the guard investigation, the DPP saying that there was no evidence to you know, connect you with the crime. Then there was the suing of the newspapers and the, and the libel trial, which turned into a, a bit of a, a, an actual trial in itself, didn't it? 
Well, it did. And it's funny because that just sort of recently resurfaced because the Attorney General at the moment, um, uh, Mr. Gallagher, was the uh, was employed by the papers to represent them in the libel cases. And on two occasions, he misled the court um, in terms of references he made to evidence, which he was he didn't call. And I actually made a complaint to the judge in the libel appeal back in 2005. Um, and I made a complaint then to the barristers' uh, complaints um, tribunal about Mr. Gallagher's role in it. But I, I didn't actually succeed in um, getting my complaint across the line, but at least I highlighted the... But there was all of that, and then there was the case against the, the guardie for the wrongful arrest, yep. and then we had... 64, 64 days up in, in Dublin over five months. That was really, really taxing and hellish and... Um, you know, tough for myself, tough for Jules, tough for our legal team. And just on that, by the way, I would, I really, really want to thank Jules so much for standing by me and also Frank Bottomer and his amazing team of legal eagles. Um, they've acted pro bono. Um, uh, they've now got some costs coming from this particular procedure, but uh, they've been absolutely wonderful. I, I couldn't be here without, uh, without either Jules or... Um, Frank Bottomer said recently, actually, as we were awaiting these decisions, that he said, uh, we should all be angry at the behaviour of the French towards not just you, but to the Irish judicial system, and we should realise the nightmare of Ian Bailey's life. What do you make of that? Mm, well, yeah, um, I mean, one, I, I've learned not to do anger uh, as an emotional state because I... I there's no point in doing anger, but uh, um, well, I mean, clearly the, the 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 French do not understand the common law, Irish, British, Anglo, Norman, whatever you want to call it, common law legal system. Um, they have a completely different system, and in effect, the system that they have, the civil code of Bonaparte law. Basically, if you were accused of a crime under the French code, you were guilty unless you can prove yourself to be innocent. Uh, it's the reverse of the, the system we have. Yeah, um, and that's what the you know the, that was the the crux of the argument for the last few years. Um, I know you don't. I know you don't do anger, but way back in the day, many of the newspapers spoke about about your anger, and you had the the diaries that were made available to people, and, and then of course there was issues involving the things that you said to various people. I couldn't help that a lot of the trouble um, that visited you, you brought upon yourself by. You know, talking too much and these kind of confessions that you gave to different people. Well, Maliki well, Reid one, Richie it. Shelley, Bill Fuller, things like that. One, 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 they weren't confessions. And I think that's covered by the DPP who actually highlights the fact that they, they weren't confessions. I was merely using irony or satire or dark humor. Yeah. To, to but the French jumped on that, didn't they? Uh, apparently so. And they, I think they relied on that quite heavily in the, the case there back in May of uh, last year. Yeah. I mean, do you re- do you regret? I mean, do you regret that? Yes, do you regret- I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, nobody can say I regret nothing. Um, I, I do regret certainly certain things, but you can't change the past. You can only learn from what you've done, learn from your mistakes, and hopefully, I've done that. Do, do you think that you were too forthcoming to the media? That maybe being a former journalist yourself, you you trusted the media too much, and then they ended up making you out to be damaging me. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I did. I did trust the media, uh, and I, 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 I still do, um, with a few exceptions, um, because the media, the fourth estate, is, is, is singularly the most important thing that we have within our sort of liberal democracies. 
Um, but yeah, I think I was a little bit too trusting. Also, I understand as well as a journalist how a lot of the journalists who were covering the case at the beginning were assured by their Garda contact in terms like this. Have no doubt it's that English so-and-so B. Bailey who murdered this woman. And they were convinced, and I know as a journalist, a former journalist or still a journalist really, that if you're assured of something by a position, a person in a position of authority, you tend to accept that. You tend not to question them. Um, so I understand how the media were hoodwinked into believing that I was somehow, um, you know, the murderer. B- because the guardy gave them that assurance, or some members of the guards. Yeah, absolutely. And we and we know this is going on. And at the same time, the same some of the same guards were going around our neighbours, telling people, "Have no doubt, it's him." Um, and, it, and you'll be next. You know, they were, they were putting fear and threat amongst the community. And why do you believe that some guardie fingered you? I think you'd have to ask Dermot uh, Dwyer that because he was the... No, well, I mean, um, let's, not, let's not hone in on any particular individual, but do you think it was... I think you'd have to address those questions to members, still living members of Angada Shia who were involved in this, what I would say was a, um, a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. That they were just looking for somebody and that you fit the bill. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, a friend of mine who was in hospital with a, a senior detective, without mentioning any names, um, they started to chat about the case. And the senior detective told my friend when he asked him about the Bailey case, he said, oh, he was the, the ideal suspect. And I think in many respects, I was the ideal suspect. I was uh, an outsider, obviously, you know, half Welsh, although I'm perceived as being English. Um... And I think there was just a desire to put me in the frame from very, very early on. And then when the French had their murder trial in absentia, you weren't there, obviously, they, you believe, just picked and chose the different parts of the evidence and the story that fitted their narrative, is it? Oh, well, I, I think that's quite clear. And I mean, um, it's, it's interesting. And the, the judge in the case that we've just settled even touched on it in his 62-page judgment. The fact that the French relied to a large degree in that uh, sham kangaroo court um, on statements that had long been discredited and withdrawn. Including Maria Farrell recanting her testimony. Including Maria Farrell. And it's interesting that only Maria Farrell's um, false statements um, were were employed, employed at the beginning um, were, were actually used in, you know, in, in the French case. Uh, the retractions, the retractions were all ignored. That's right. That's right. Did you ever consider going over? Uh, was that ever an option for you to go? I did, I did consider it at one point. I remember thinking, should I go? And I had a long think about it. And I took legal advice on the matter. And I, I was advised not to. And the, basically the, the reason being that I felt that I would not get a fair trial, whether I was there or not in France. And that if you didn't get a fair trial, you'd never be leaving France. You'd be going directly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, the, once you're accused under French law, unless you can prove you're innocent, you are, you are guilty. And, and, that, and that is my situation. So you were expecting to be found guilty then? I, barring a miracle which never occurred, i.e. some new piece of information or somebody coming forward. I'm saying something new. I knew that that was probably my inevitable fate. And I'd known that for many, many years. And it, it turned out to be. Do, do you think, like, like I do, that 
over the years, Sophie has been forgotten about in, in all in all of this very much uh, because of. I all don't. I don't think she's been forgotten. I mean, the, the one thing that I know is I have nothing to do with this. I know the French family and the French system have, have bought into the false narrative. But at the, the end of the day, this isn't over because a woman was murdered quite brutally by whom we know. I, I, all I know is I have nothing to do with it by somebody quite clearly. And there was so much evidence that was ignored right at the beginning that could have actually led to the a, a successful um, investigation. I mean, there were, there were countless pieces of information. For instance, a man who was overtaken at seven, around about 7.30 on Monday, the 23rd of December, 1996, not very far from where I'm talking to you now, on the road to, to, to a bantry, he was overtaken by a speeding car almost made him crash, a blue fourth fiesta. He reported it to the guards on the Tuesday, which was Christmas Eve, with numbers in the number plate even. There was never an appeal for that vehicle. And the, one of, I came across that statement by chance when we were going through boxes of discovery. One of the things, I've never been able to connect the driver of that car to the crime, but at the same time, you cannot say that the driver of that blue fourth fiesta wasn't somehow responsible for the crime. And there were other pieces of information which were deliberately ignored. The actual events of your life, uh, tracing back to 1996 and also the horrific death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, have been almost almost been resurrected again in various forms. One, of course, was the West Cork podcast, um, and that went international. Um, what, what did you make of that podcast? Well, I met the podcaster Sam and Jennifer when they, they came over from London for the beginning of the civil action back in 2014. I think that's, yeah. And they introduced themselves and told me about their idea. I thought they would seem reasonable, professional. I trusted them uh, and I gave them access and then they produced their, their podcast. And I, I thought it was reasonably fair. I thought they did a good job. It was a very complicated story. And they're actually working on part two of um, the podcast. So you were happy with how it portrayed you? Um, I Well, I just, I listened to it in one fell swoop. It was 10 hours and I'd listened to it in two five-hour bursts. Yeah, there were one or two things I took except, well, but it, I, I, I think they did a very good job. It's a very complicated story. And the one thing I've noticed since the podcast came out is that it introduced the um, the scenario or the story to a generation of a people whole new who generation. weren't even born. Yes. Weren't even, you know, there weren't even twinkles in their mother and father's eyes when this occurred. Did, did you have sign-off on that, incidentally? Did you have to agree to allow them to release it? Oh, yes, I gave them permission, yeah. I, you, you, that's a legal requirement, is, you know, when, you, well, you know, you, you, you sign you, release you, papers. Yeah, and did, yeah. Were you, were you, incidentally, were you paid for that? No, no, I think the what I got was I got a, some coffee, a, pa a packet of coffee, a tin of biscuits, and I think they took us out for a lunch on one occasion, and that was... I think that was it. No, no, there was no, it wasn't about the money. And it, it wasn't about the money from their point of view either because they actually made, people think they've done very well out of it financially. I know they, Audible covered their costs. They were not in it for the okay. money. Okay. And, and now Jim Sheridan of My Left Foot is making a, a three-parter on you, isn't it? Which probably will air, I believe, on Netflix in the new year. Is that right? Well, no, I think there's a bit of confusion there. There's there? two projects. Two different ones, yeah. Clear yeah, there are two. So, at the same time that Sam and Jennifer approached me in the first week of the civil action, um, Jim Sheridan came up to me in the four courts in Dublin and introduced himself, like everybody knows him anyway, and said he was very interested in doing a 
something. He wasn't quite sure what a film or a documentary. And I've been cooperating with him now for six years, five or six years. More recently, um, Netflix came in through a London-based company called Lightbox, run by a man called Simon Chin. And they pitched to, to Netflix a documentary project. And uh, I'm, I'm, I've given the Netflix team some limited outside access to me just in the open air and in the marketplace. Right. But I'm not actively cooperating with their project. But you are with Jim Sheridan, clearly. And is there, is there a, do you have a financial interest in any of these? No, absolutely not at all. Um, no. Do, do, you, do you like or do you, do you enjoy the publicity? No, well, I <laughs> do I enjoy it. Uh, it look, it's just some, one. I was, a, you know, I'm a media person. Obviously, I have a, you know, a very good, legitimate, long-term background in newspapers, broadcasting, television, radio. Um, I no, I just deal with it. I, it's something that I just deal with. I mean, people have, have, have criticised me for apparently, um, uh, you know, seemingly to to be sort of somehow enjoying it. Uh, <laughs> I, I just deal with it. If yeah, if I mean, with regards to the other aspects of your life, though, um, I know you did law uh, in UCC. Yeah, um, will, yeah. will you will you practice, or what was the point well, of that? I, I, I had a, I, I thought had I won the case, which I was never going to win against the state, I might have gone up to um, King's Inns and um, done the barrister's course. But no, I mean, my my knowledge of law is this that <laughs> uh, I. No, I don't think so. Um, well, I am thinking about going back to further education again in 2021. Uh, I was waiting for this to clear before I made any sort of plans because I didn't know if I was going to be, you know, possibly carted off or whatever. So I'm I'm actually um, looking for a course in applied psychology at the moment. Um, and how down through the decades have you managed to support yourself financially? Well, I've eked out an existence, <laughs> um, and, and you know, I've, I've just about managed to get by. Um, sometimes it's been very hard. It, it still is hard because, you know, I've I derived a small amount of income from selling poetry, and I would carve, and I occasionally sell a, a wood piece. Um, I, you know, and I've done other little jobs um, to, to uh, you know, keep on keeping on. And with regards to West Cork and, and home down in the Skull area, uh, what's, your, what's your relationship with, with, with the locals? How, how has that been down through the years? Oh, has it been divided? Wonderful. I mean, there, there are a number of people who were in the He Did It camp right yes. from the beginning, and they, they, I see them around on the street, and I won't mention any names. I feel quite sorry for them. They can't look me in the eye. The majority of people, and that's the vast majority of people, uh, have been really wonderful and really supportive. You know, and, I'm, I'm, and that support, by the way, has been genuinely quite helpful. It's lifted me when I've been maybe a bit down. But there are those that still believe that you're the guy. No, I mean, you'd have to go out and ask them. I think when, you, when you've invested so much, shall we say, in a false theory or a false narrative and you've chosen to believe, um, you know, a big lie for whatever reasons you've chosen to believe that, I think it becomes very difficult for the individual to psychologically um, cross the, the the bridge, as it were, and think, ah, I think I, ah, yeah, it, I've made a mistake here. I think it's very difficult for people to, to you know, do that. Oh, was that not driven by media, though? I wonder. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it was, well, certainly it was driven by media and it was also driven by guards who were going around the community telling people, and this is covered in the DPP's report, 2001, which we didn't get until 2011, um, where he acknowledges the fact that guards were going around our neighbours telling people it was I was the murderer. And in that respect, they were sort of encouraging fear and, and trepidation in people. But what of what of Sophie's family in in all of this, and and her son and her extended mm. family um, mm. with an unsolved crime? Do do you feel for them at all? And, yeah, and, and I do. I do, and it's it's a funny one because I can't do anything about what they choose to believe. Um, all I know is that they were assured right from the beginning by the then, I think he was a superintendent, Martin Callanan, right at the beginning, this is back in December of, 2000, of 1996, that the Irish police knew who the murderer was and that I was the murderer. So they were told right from the beginning, have no doubt, we know who it is. So I can understand that they, how they, shall we say, bought into the false narrative. And I'm sympathetic to them, but I can't do anything about their, their, their predicament. Would a lie detector have made any difference back in the day? I, I, do you know, I've actually, I've, I've actually said this to other people. Uh, well, one lie, lie detector wouldn't have any validity in, in law. You know, it's not something you could rely on. But I've, um, <laughs> I, I'd actually be quite happy to have a lie detector test. In fact, several of them, probably. Um, uh, did anybody ever they- suggest that? Well, I was actually thinking about it myself. Um, having said that, it's it's something I haven't done, but I... I sorry, we've got little chickens here. I don't know if you can hear them in the background. We've, we've hatched a whole load of little chicks. Um, and... Uh, uh, no, it, it's an interesting one, and I, I'm potentially open to that possibility. It won't. You see, I, I, if you go to Bantry, for instance, I'll be very careful what I'm going to say here. If you go to Bantry and you wander around Bantry Town, which I do on a Friday very often with the market, almost every other person in Bantry will tell you who they think murdered Sophie Tuskender Plantier, and it wasn't me. And there's a very strong belief in Bantry, without mentioning any names, that it, it's a person who's now long dead. Um, but I, 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 and I still live in hope that somebody might have the courage to come forward. But that was there. another question I wanted to put to you. Do you think that this case will actually ever be solved? It was so remote. There were no witnesses. The forensics were nil. The DNA, the, there was no, we didn't have CCTV. There was no pinging of mobile phones like they have in modern technology. Uh, there was, our body was left 48 hours covered in a plastic sheet. The, the, the crime seat was tampered upon and trampled upon. Um, this was this I know, was and, and, and the off. Missing a, a six-bar gate at the big at the entrance. The, gate, the, the, yeah. the land went missing, and nobody's ever explained what how a six-bar gate, which was covered. I saw the forensic photographs. We got them from the, the scene of crime photographs in the French end of the, the proceedings, and it was quite clear that the gate was had what looked to my eyes on the photographs like handprints, blooded handprints. And clearly, they weren't my handprints. Otherwise, you know, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. Um, and the and that gate went missing. Why did that gate go missing? Um, and my theory is that it had to go missing. If you were going to put an innocent person myself in the frame, and there was evidence actually indicating it was somebody else, you'd have to lose that other evidence because you wouldn't be able to make the the stitch ups. And was that gate originally taken by Gardy? Yes, it was taken by a guy called. Well, oh no, I don't want to know who it was oh, taken no, by. But it was, at one it stage, was it was in. Yeah. It, it was, wasn't guarded. It was, was guarded custody. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was taken by the exhibits officer who was okay. appointed the exhibits officer. And then there was a wine glass, wasn't there? Wine bottle found. 
I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. What I, well, I think there were two wine glasses in in in, in the place, but that that's. At a wine bottle found in a ditch. I heard about that much, much later. I think that was somehow found maybe in, on the court in 1997. So and have you ever speculated as to what you think happened in those, in those last hours and minutes? Did I don't know. Um, all I know is I have nothing to do with it. I know it's a very isolated place. I know the chances of finding that place where she lived, Dunan, very remote, would be very slight. I'm convinced that somebody had knowledge of her coming here. Um, uh, there are, it, it's very frustrating because it's like having a jigsaw, a big jigsaw in front of you, and there are maybe five or six pieces missing, and you're looking for the missing pieces and you can't find them. Um, I, I, I don't know. I did mean, you, I, did, I mean, did yeah, and, and you're... You're a piece of the jigsaw that you say doesn't fit into this puzzle. But did you know her at all? I mean, did you ever have no, a conversation? No, no, I had never met her. I'd never been introduced to her. I know that various people said they had seen me being introduced to her. No, I did not. And what's next for you now, now that you have this well, news that the French can't well, jail you? As soon as, get, as soon as I can get away from Union, <laughs> I'm going to go out and I'm going to get on with my day's chores, which are... I'm, I'm carving, I'm, I'm trying to carve wood, wooden bowls so that, well, the Christmas market, if we have a Christmas market, I don't think, oh God, nobody knows today at the moment. Um, you could move, you could move online, surely. Uh, yeah, I could actually, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm quite antediluvian. Um, I don't really like computers. I'm, I'm quite old fashioned. Do you not think that life. there might be some kind of, uh, macabre interest in somebody buying, uh, an Ian Bailey carved bowl online? that online but they can get them from me in person but I do have my second collection of poetry of John Wayne's State of Mind which I published last year which a lot of the poems actually relate to what was happening in my life last year but I know I've recorded that as an audio book and it should be it should have been available by now but it's it's everything's taking much longer but what about next week next month Christmas next year have you plans made well, I, I, everything was on hold for a long while because of this case. But my my, my plan would be to, if, if I can, uh, probably study online and do a course on applied psychology yeah. with in, in this covert era. Because of what I'm noticing when I go out and about is a lot of people are finding it very tough dealing with this this thing that we have to deal with at the moment. And of course, we're in lockdown again. Um, interestingly, down here in the rural west and rural isolationists, and there are a lot of them down here, it affects them less than people maybe like where you are in the city. Without a doubt, without a doubt, and that's and one all, of the consequences. The, win- the winter generally goes, I mean, the one thing that everybody's going to be missing down here, and they're already missing it in that one because there are so many good musicians in, in the Skull, Bantry, Skibbereen area. They used to be the most amazing musical sessions in bars. I don't know if anybody can remember. And that was one way of dealing with the winter. You could go out on a Friday night, maybe have a pint, listen to some music, sing a song, maybe a Sunday night. That won't happen this year. So we're not going to have that that little mm. sort of ray of sunshine. Mm. Um, it's going to okay. be a very tough, tough uh, winter. I think it's going to be the toughest winter for anybody in living memory. Okay, well, let's see what Christmas brings brings to us as to whether or not we get... I think Santi's going to be banned, by the way, because the word is going around that one of Santi's elves is showing COVID symptoms. Oh, man, you're going to get me into all sorts of trouble with mammies and daddies for saying that. Of course... He he could become a super spreader, you see, which is the problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> on that point, I'll let you get back to the chickens. Thanks for taking yeah, the call, thank Ian. Thank you very much, Neil. Appreciate thank it. You. Take care. Good thank you. I was too fain. Uh, Ian Bailey uh, in West Cork. And that was a joke, lads. Uh, Santa Claus is not in any way affected by any diseases or viruses. He just can't be. He's such a magic man. All the elves as well. Last time that I checked in with Santi's elves, they're working away like crazy. Uh, up in the North Pole, making toys and building stuff for the kids come Christmas time. And nothing else may happen between now and December 31st, but Santa Claus will be calling on the 24th and the 25th of December. Uh, lines are open at one 104 Your thoughts on that conversation are welcome. Text 0868-104-106. Back after the break. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. My apologies. There are two, uh, well, there's certainly one big blockbuster documentary drama type thing being done by uh, Jim Sheridan because I've uh, done some work with him. Uh, he's the man behind Ireland's most famous movies, My Left Foot and In the Name of the Father. And he's been six years working on this project at the moment. Um, and I believe, and I can, I can double check on that, but I believe that that might be ready and edited and packaged and ready to go. Uh, sometime in in November. Uh, some more details on that. Keep those texts coming. Text 0868 104 106. I was talking about the mother and baby commissions uh, report and, um, you know, there's a lot of confusion about whether or not it'll be sealed. Some people are saying that this has to be sealed for 30 years because some of the evidence that was given, particularly by those involved in the homes, working in the homes, uh, gave it in confidence and uh, in camera. Issues like that. Almost 50 years ago, as an 18-year-old, I went to work on the farm attached to Besbra. And the everlasting image I have working on the farm is of at least 10 or more pregnant girls dressed in matching watery brown shift dresses on their knees, pregnant girls on their knees, cutting the grass on the side of the entrance drive with hedge clippers and scissors. Later in life, I read the book, uh, A Light in the Window, and it all started to make sense. These girls were abused by those who were supposed to be minding them, and worse, their minders were all meant to be Christian. Um, And I know I have other texts and stories and emails from people uh, who were either born there um, or indeed gave birth there, and I'll come back to them throughout the course of the morning. But huge amount of correspondence by way of email and text, and if you don't mind, I'll just take a few minutes to go through some of those from recent topics, particularly people who are really, really struggling. I just wanted to write to you about my stepdaughter and a four-year-old son. They live in a flat in Cork. She receives HAP, and they're both absolutely freezing. I am so worried about them. She's trying and trying to get a job with hours to suit her because of her four-year-old now that her son is in school, but no luck trying to get a job. She really needs a break in life, Neil. There are storage heaters in the flat, which cost a small fortune to run. I would have thought that storage heaters should have been the other way around. Wasn't that the whole idea about them? Anyway, she says, it's a bit of a kip, really. And I don't know how anybody would think it's suitable for a small child. Before they got this flat, they were in bed and breakfast for a long time. My husband and I do what we can. We take her son every weekend and he stays overnight every second weekend. But we both work full time. We adore him, but she's 30 years old. She's a woman with a child. She needs her own space. Perhaps your listeners might know, is there anybody out there that will be willing to give her a few hours employment? She worked in a supermarket last year and they were mad about her. And called her back after Christmas, but she couldn't work uh, evenings until 10 or 11 o'clock at night because of her young son. She is a grafter. She wants the best for her child, and she really deserves a break. I'm so worried for her mental health. Love the show. Don't give out our details. Is there anybody out there that would have a few hours work, daytime work? I'd say ideally morning work when her son is in school. 
to help this young woman out. It could change her life if somebody has a few hours work. And apparently uh, where she worked in the supermarket when she could work, they were mad about her. And she was a great, great worker. Um, so do come back to me on that. Text 0868104106 if you can help. Uh, and we can come back to it at that stage. Um, then a lot of issues then uh, regarding um, postnatal depression or issues involving depression amongst people uh, who have had children. And also, you know, we were talking there recently about um, men and how they react to uh, children arriving in the home. And I want to come back to some of those across uh, the morning. But there's a lot then on access. Please don't give out my details, but just like to respond to the email that you read out on the program about child access and maintenance. I feel that fathers have made, being a father, it's people make huge generalizations with regards to the courts, the system, and how mothers and fathers are treated. To state that the majority of sufferers are father, fathers is utter nonsense. Yes, there are fathers who have a difficult time and if they're in any way decent parents, then of course they'll miss their children and I do feel sorry for them. But a lot of the sufferers here are mothers. When a court order is required, it's because the split isn't amicable, which means there's an amount of hostility or tension between the partners in most of the cases. In a lot of these cases, it's the children who are used as weapons to cause as much hurt to the partner as possible. I write from personal experience, not as a father and not as a mother, but a stepfather. I have had to endure my wife sitting on the floor sobbing on numerous occasions after receiving yet another solicitor's letter or a summons for access or the ex finding an excuse to come to the door to harass and abuse abuse my wife. She has good reason to be upset as every time she says to go back to court, the judge has said uh, she doesn't have time for it and awards more and more access to the father. The judge has not taken into account the circumstances, the previous abusive correspondence. For the record, my wife has never restricted access, has always tried to maintain a positive relationship with the abusive ex, and her suggestions for access was the child going to his dad's on his days off as he has a changing shift pattern and the minimum amount of maintenance is asked to be paid. The father has dismissed this, saying he wants 50-50 access and has almost got it pays even less in maintenance each time as the court loves hearing about the father wanting more access because it's so rare. This has nothing to do with the money, but he doesn't contribute to a single cost uh, of the child with regards to school, medical care, after-school activities the child may display an interest in, he doesn't support financially. His argument is that he has as much access, um, he shouldn't need to contribute, yet according to his financial records, which he had to release, he's nearly bankrupt, he says. Any day he has the child and he's working, the child is left in the care of his mother or his girlfriend. Yet my wife left her full-time job to be able to have total availability to her son. But the court ignores this. There has been huge negative impacts on my wife's mental health, but nobody seems to care. As long as the court says it's politically correct and awards rights to abusive men, then it's deemed to have done its job. He lords this over my wife as he feels the court is his own personal tool to harass her. He's kept the child after access on numerous occasions because he felt felt like it. And the guard's response when we call them is, there's nothing we can do. I just wanted to email, as some of those letters you read struck a chord with me, particularly the guy's letter. uh, After watching my wife suffer this abuse for the last six years and being powerless to stop it, I wanted to give another perspective because the problem in each case is different 
And there's a huge number of abusive men out there who will latch on to the emails you read and will use them to act like the victimized minority. Once the damage is done and they get their way, then it's no longer about the welfare of the child. That becomes secondary. The main concern is the child, though, and ensuring that it's not used as a weapon to cause hurt. Every case is different, but you making generalizations is extremely dangerous, especially now with the last few months. I suppose the last few months have been very difficult, really, with regards to access and visitation rights. And perhaps people are using it as an excuse to mess with visitation and access. But, um, I, I mean, fair enough if, if you think that I generalize. But my job, really, uh, is to um, give people a platform to have their own points of view. And if I read out emails or texts from people's own stories, please don't interpret them as being mine. one eight fifty one zero four one zero six on that. And that's just one of many which I will drill back into and lots more besides uh, after 10. Back in a minute. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. You spoke to a guy who stated that lockdown is not the right approach and I couldn't agree more. You then went on to ask him what makes him think that his life is more valuable than the life of an elderly person. But what gives you or the government the right to think an elderly person or a sick person's life is more valuable than a fit human being? It's not. Harsh fact, but the younger are more valuable. Where would society be if everyone was sick or old? Nowhere. How can society function with no young people? When I say young, I'm referring to people below retirement age. Who's going to wait at your tables? Who's going to serve you? Who's going to teach your kids? Young people. The old and the sick, is it? Because these lockdowns are running the younger generation into the ground. 47% of people 15 and older who are in in employment, myself included, at the beginning of this pandemic, have now been fully laid off. Temporarily laid off or negatively affected in some way. These people have mortgages, cars, kids. How do you expect people to bear these burdens in lockdown? What about those who can't get their cancer treatment? What about those who can't get smear tests? What about those who are awaiting an urgent operation that can't get it? Are you, Neil, saying our lives are worth less than those with underlying conditions or those who are old? There's been less than 1,900 deaths related to COVID. This deadly virus... Come on, wise up. Might I add, the government's been caught declaring a death from a heart attack as COVID because the person had COVID at the time. The death wasn't from COVID. It was a heart attack. Uh, So we're running the country into the ground. We have the youngest population in Europe and we're putting them all and their futures in jeopardy by these lockdowns. Death is going to be a consequence no matter what we do. If lockdowns carry on, I can guarantee suicides will skyrocket. They already have. I can guarantee people will die from illnesses because they can't get their treatment. On the other hand, we could carry on like we were prior to level three, have some normality with restrictions. It worked well. The death rates were very little because the elderly stayed home. Joe Soap washed his hands, wore his mask around his granny, and we did a good job. Unfortunately, if an elderly person contracts COVID and dies, well, I'm sorry. I think it's a small price to pay for mental health and well-being of the rest of the population. To be honest, a lot of elderly people feel bad for the younger generation because they too feel it's unfair. My own grandfather said he thinks it's a disgrace. We can do our bit as a society by distancing, masking and sanitizing. We already know these are the strongest ways. So why lock us up? We bought the government time to sort this out and nothing was done to have a safer space for the old and the vulnerable. Why should the whole country pay for poor decision making made by our leaders? I'm not saying 
that's an easy task but God something that should have been looked at and tackled in the first place so again that's more an, an email uh, giving an example of the divisiveness in society as to regards to the old and the vulnerable and the young and the fit we can pick up on that on after 10 if you wish text 0868104106 okay on my conversation with Ian Bailey before 10 this morning I don't know if Ian Ga- Bailey is guilty of murder or not but he certainly is guilty of acting the langer this morning my small fella won't stop me asking me about Santi's elves that was a reference to Ian Bailey talking about Christmas uh, all will be well that was just a joke yeah, that was just a bit of fun. Santa Claus and the elves are all working away. Uh, morning. I love hearing Ian Bailey. I lost my husband in January and my brother passed me the West Cork podcast. So now I go to bed every night uh, listening to it in the background. It's kept me sane and puts me to sleep. I have since visited all the place names. Three Castle Head, Sophie's House. I even visited and spoke to Ian Bailey at his stall in Skull. Innocent or guilty, I'm not the judge. There were lots of mistakes made in the case for sure. Um, the West Cork podcast shouldn't be putting you to sleep. It should be keeping you up and keeping you awake and glued to it. Uh, lads, if you haven't uh, followed it, um, it's uh, week, It's uh, how many episodes? 10, 12, 15? I'm not quite sure. It's so long since I listened to it. But it's on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, you pay for it. It's not a whole lot of money. Uh, and uh, it really and truly delves right into the case in quite some detail. It's audio, obviously, not visual. Um, another one here. It always has smelt of a cover-up. Um, I wouldn't like to be an innocent French citizen with a wealthy French family after me, though, uh, says uh, Anthony. Uh, another one here. I'm just wondering who is paying Frank Buttermer's legal fees. Well, all that work was done pro bono. There was no um, Ian Bailey didn't have to didn't have to pay. They did lose um, uh, a case. Uh, where the legal fees against them were ran up to about six million, but you know, if you don't have the money, I don't know how you could ever pay six million in legal fees. But I think the only fees that um, Ian Bailey's legal team will get will be the fees from this these extradition hearings, which could run to sixty, seventy grand. But everything else that they've done down through the years, all of Ian Bailey's legal team have done it for nothing. Uh, why didn't Ian Bailey go over to France and face the music? Surely people who are innocent seek to clear their name. Well, the only thing I can tell you about that is, um, for those of us and you guys listening who follow the French trial um, in the newspapers, uh, they were very selective about the evidence that they used. They used uh, Marie Farrell's original testimony and never used the recanted one. So they were very selective about what they picked. And that's why, say, for instance, Frank Buttermer said it was a show trial and... uh, I'd say maybe we would even describe it if he was here as a bit of a farce. Um, and I think that the reason that Ian Bailey didn't go over was because it was going to be uh, fait accompli that he was going to be found guilty. And if he'd gone over there, he'd never have come back. Does that answer your question? Uh, keep those texts coming. Text 0868104106. But we're looking, of course, at Halloween. Or maybe not. Well, certainly Halloween will happen. But trick-or-treating is another matter entirely. I see a new term that's being used now called home-a-ween as opposed to Halloween, because it's not recommended that you go trick-or-treating from door to door. Um, Mind you, I am seeing videos being sent to me and screenshots and texts from people who are having their pumpkins robbed from outside their door. They've done all the right things. They've carved them up. They've put the lights into them. They put them outdoors. They light them up. And some geezers come along and rob them. I sent some CCTV footage this morning. Uh, Somebody's got a camera outside their front door. Uh, And these two characters run up, the two of them, grab a pumpkin each 
and they leg it. Somebody was saying to me it's because pumpkins are hot property at the moment because they're in short supply. But anyway, with all that and lots more besides, Melissa, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Are you up for uh, trick-or-treating door-to-door with your kids or what? Um, I'm wondering what people's views are. I'm wondering trick-or-treating probably is impossible because of this disease. But I'm wondering, could we organise a parade where the children could walk around their parks and just let adults see them dressed up? Because a lot of the time, 50-50 kids enjoy it, getting dressed up just as much as they do getting the sweets. Yeah, but if if they get dressed up and go around looking like ghosts and spirits and skeletons and spooky characters, would they be what? Would they be parading and marching around with their mates? No, no. An adult would supervise them. I'm wondering if the residents' associations or residents' committees from certain parks, could they organise something? I know there was car parades organised for Carrigaline and Ballincollig, but the guards pulled the plug on them. Yeah, well, if they're going to pull the plug in it inside in the car, they're going to pull the plug in it walking around the states, aren't they? If you could bring it smaller, like I know in my own estate, my daughter is probably the only one around the front of the estate, and there's probably a handful of more around the back. So I'm wondering if mothers could get together and organise to walk their children around the park. Is there something that could be done outside I, of just shutting it off completely? But does that involve calling and knocking on people's front doors? It wouldn't, no. It would put a message out to say if the adults want to be a part of it, they stand outside at a certain hour. And if they don't want to take part, they don't have to stand out. Um, have a listen to this. Can't come on the show. Don't give out my details. But a neighbour of mine posted this in the local Facebook page a number of weeks ago prior to level five. He then printed these off and posted them into the letterboxes of houses in my estate. I think this is putting pressure on people. Kids should not be calling to houses no matter what. And it says trick or treat with a spin instead of kids not supposed to go trick or treating. Bring a bag of sweets with your kids dressed up around your estate. Call to, the, uh, call to the houses with porch lights on or decorations up. Get your kids to put the sweets in the Halloween bags or a basket. Leave them on the porch. Ring the bell and leg it. I'll be doing this with my five-year-old twin boys. It's certainly a thought. I don't know if I'd be legging it either. I might stand at the end of the drive to say a happy Halloween anyway, at least. But I'm sure there's but something if everyone was to think of something, but something that's, could that's, be done. That's in reverse, though. The kids are supposed to call to the houses to get sweets, not to call yeah, to houses so to leave. There's so much after changing for the kids now. They're so adaptable. If it was to be explained that you can't take sweets from other people's houses anymore, I'm sure they'd be happy enough just but to go around. Can you not come up with some sort of a plan for inside your own house? You could. I know there's a one where you can do trick-or-treating inside your own house where you can stand behind every door in your house and let the child come knocking at every door you have available in the house and do like, trick-or-treating that way. Yeah, go into a bedroom, then knock on the bedroom door, go into the yeah, kitchen. Yeah, and then, then you knock. open it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just wondering as a community, is there something that we could all do for the children? I mean, like we need to remember in March, they went to school and all of a sudden they came home from school and everything changed. And Christmas is going to change. There's going to be so much change for them. But if they give the green light to people to go trick-or-treating, they will abuse it. Some will abuse it. So, oh, of course, but that's going to happen in every situation anyway. You know, no matter what you decide to do, there's always going to be the good with the bad. I'm just wondering, is there anything that we could Let's do? Let's find out if people manner? have any kind of novel ideas as to how we can approach this for for Saturday night, yeah? Yeah, exactly. That would be great. All right. Appreciate it. Stay listening. Thanks, Melissa. Leah, good morning. 
Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm talking about earlier on there about pumpkin theft. Yes. Yeah. Yours were not stolen, we, but they, s- go ahead. Yes. They were smashed. Basically, um, we love Halloween in our house first and foremost. So we got our pumpkins last week. We did four because I have four girls. So we did spend the time carving them out. Spent a lot of time scooping the insides out and putting our work into the pumpkins. Do you have any problem buying them, incidentally? Somebody's telling me they're like gold. No, we got them last week actually in our local Aldi store and there was loads to choose from. So okay. we kind of chose a variety of sizes and everything. I hope they're so, Irish pumpkins, are they? Irish pumpkins, yes they were. Nice one, okay, go ahead. But uh, we went ahead and we carved them and we had them in our porch. We just kind of put them outside because when you keep them inside they kind of get a bit mouldy and kind of a bit ripe and stuff. So we just put them outside our front door in kind of a, it's an open porch kind of just um, just by the driveway there. So basically we had them, they were delighted. The kids had named them, had done their own designs and everything. So um, just last night I was going to the local shop. I went out, reversed out in my driveway, and I saw all these pumpkins smashed on the road just outside our front garden. So I kind of went, I remember not seeing ours as we came out the door, so I looked back, and literally, there were all our pumpkins were all smashed all across the roadway. So you can imagine the kids were very upset by that. You know, all their um, work. All of yeah, their work. Yeah, all their work, exactly. I mean, my, especially my little one, she was seven. She was quite upset by it, so I was quite annoyed. So I just took a photograph and popped it up on our Cove discussion page. Yes. I normally don't post anything on this page, but I was just so annoyed. And actually, I was quite shocked by the thread that came out. A lot of other people have experienced this in the local area. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know any of this. You know, and they, like people were very good offering us other pumpkins. My neighbour just called to a lovely pumpkin there for the girls for us to carve today. You yeah, know, but you're there probably crazy. afraid that it'll happen again now. Absolutely, and their pumpkins are just next door. They have three pumpkins in their porch, same area, you know. And also on the thread, actually, one of my neighbours further down the road, actually in broad daylight, had her pumpkins taken from her front door, and she actually has a video of the two boys that had done it. You Maybe know? that's the one I saw. These two characters yes. that run up, grab them and run. And they ran and literally... Why are they doing it? Do they do they want them because they like them and they want them in their own house or they just... No, I think they were smashed outside my neighbour's house. And they were smashed. They were smashed across the, guard, or on the road outside. We were picking up the remnants of the pumpkin this morning. It's heartbreaking, know? isn't it? Absolutely. When you go, I mean, we're trying to make it kind of special this year to make it a little bit different. And just like your previous caller was talking about there, we're planning to do bedroom knocking on our doors. We're calling to all the bedrooms. <laughs> so that's our game. <laughs> is that the plan, tonight. is it? That's the plan in our house. And my eldest girl is 12. She's going to plan all the party games. So she's looking at mummy toilet roll wrapping and, you know, the usual snap apples and things like that. And they understand that it's different this year for a reason, is it? Absolutely, and they do. They do. But it's just frustrating when you go to this, you know, and then kids just come and destroy what you've done. You know, we've decorated. We have a little kind of projector outside the house and... Like Christmas, really. I know, I know. Mad, you know, just to get the kids to be jolly along, I guess. And then these characters come along and smash them up. Yeah, yeah. Great community spirit, isn't it? Yeah, I know exactly. I was kind of mind you, there is good community spirit as well, in the sense that people have offered you replacements. Absolutely, and people have been very kind and messaging to see how my little girl was and hope she was okay and stuff. So I suppose it showed the worst and the best of the community spirit. Okay. Well, will you ever tell? Would you ever tell your little seven-year-old that I'm going to send her uh, a couple of pizza vouchers for some hot piping pizza for the weekend? Oh, she'd be delighted. She'd be delighted. Thank you so much, Nate. Okay. Well done. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks for that. Stay on hold and get an address and we'll get some Oak Fire Pizza your way. We have lots of Oak Fire Pizzas to give away for people who come on air and send us texts and communicate with the program. Incidentally, two kids smashed a pumpkin in our garden yesterday. They were also breaking glass bottles on the road. When I confronted them, they didn't give a damn. 
They were only about 10 years old. Uh, morning, Neil. Our pumpkins were smashed outside the house two days ago as well. Seems to be a new thing. I saw smashed pumpkins in different locations while walking the dog this morning. It's disgraceful. Morning, we had the same. It was only about, th- it was only up about three hours when they came in our gate and knocked it on the ground. Smashed it. The pumpkin. People put an awful lot of effort into creating and crafting it. It actually happened to me last Saturday morning. They took it right from the front of my house with all the battery operated lights attached. My kids are in disbelief why someone would do something like that. We had one smashed outside our door a few nights ago and another morning there was a ceramic pumpkin smashed right at the front door. None of them were ours, just mindless scumbags. Why? Is it happening all over the place or is it in one particular area? Our estate is doing a pumpkin hunt. Every time a child files a pumpkin in a neighbor's window or outside their neighbor's house, their parents must give them a treat. And I suppose that that's happening uh, in isolation. For that to work, though, you need to get all of the neighbours involved, don't you? Uh, anyway, lines open on that. one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. You can text 086-8104-106. Oh, Neil, I see. You're on about the off-licences again. I swear you're obsessed with them. Last week, three times in one day, you brought it up about closing them on last Tuesday's show. I think... Just because uh, people don't drink, you want everybody else to follow suit. Uh, not at all. I mean, not in, in any way, shape or form am I saying uh, that off-licenses should close. I'm wondering about the disparity between those that have closed and those that have not. Um, I'm just thinking, is it completely fair on all other retail when they remain open? Um, people are saying that if someone can't buy underpants, that we should close the off-licenses. The man at Dunn's and staff working there are only doing their job. It is the government that is everyone at each other's throat with their stupid made-up rules and regulations. When the time comes round to vote again, who do you think these people will vote for? Again. Morning. To answer your question, drink is a major revenue earner for the government. And if they stopped all sales of drink in Ireland, we would have a major backlash from the people. Bit by bit, it's all falling apart. Um, we're a nation of alcoholics and the drink keeps us depressed. Stop the drink and you'll see people... Uh, you'll stop the drink and you will see people what they really think of these restrictions then, says James. Hope that makes sense. Listening to the show since the last lockdown came about and I have concluded that you have become the new Father Matthew. You're so against the off-licenses. No, not at all. There are jobs behind them. There are people working in them. I'm just wondering, what reason, what is the reason why they are still open um, and deemed as essential um, when others are closed? Like, for instance, somebody who wants to go and play a game of golf or somebody, and that's probably one of the most isolating sports you can think of, or somebody who wants to go and uh, work out in a gym for their mental health, or as was pointed out on this program yesterday morning again by people, why somebody can't go to a hairdresser's where it's as much of the hair or the social aspect or the therapy uh, and hairdressing salons are quite safe. Not everyone in the country has a drink problem. There are retired people looking forward to their little tipple at the weekends. Let them have that, for God's sake. Life is tough enough for, the, for them without this pandemic. Uh, I think you are eventually waking up. If people have drink, they're not in reality. Therefore, they don't know what's going on lately. That is what the government wants, to keep us in the dark with drink. They know if they take the drink away from the Irish people, they will they will really get out to the streets and boom... It will be game over. I think you're suggesting if they take the drink away, there'll be a revolution. Uh, I just can't get over how the government is working. All non-essential businesses are closed. How are the off-licenses an essential business? It baffles me. 
I've been laid off my job in a retail store for the second time this year. And with off licenses still being open, I find it very, very frustrating. And just two quick ones here. Are you really suggesting the real reason for the government are allowing the sale of alcohol is to control the population during the pandemic? Well, it's a suggestion. Uh, you could not serve drink, as I'd imagine a lot of people would go into with, you could not, you could not stop serving drink, as I'd imagine a lot of people would go into withdrawals, which would require hospital treatment. It would overwhelm the hospitals. Also, I cannot understand why the money wasn't invested in the ICUs rather than now being invested in lockdowns. Well, that is an intelligent question to ask. I have to tell you that. Back after the break. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851 Red FM. Some people are doing quite well. Thank you very much. This is a supplier to cafes who says many small businesses are going down the toilet right now. That we know. But one thing that no one is talking about is the fact that any cafe that is open has seen business increase by 50 to 60 percent. This is a fact. It seems a taboo to mention it as a business owner to say you're busy in these times. But I supply cafes and I can't keep up with the non-stop demand. I'm now supplying 50% more than I ever did. I'm run off my feet all of the time and I'd love a break, but it's not an option. Don't get me wrong, I'm grateful, but it's exhausting. The higher the restrictions, the busier the cafes get and that's a fact since COVID began. Why is it taboo to say you're busier than ever right now? Well, cafes for takeout. Well, fair play if they are busy. I'm delighted for them. I know on a stroll down around Blackrock Village there at the weekend... What day was it? Was it No, it was Monday, Bank Holiday Monday. Uh, both cafes were open down in Blackrock Village and there was a very, very long queue, socially distant queue, at both of them. And I said, well, thank God for that. Actually, the marina was like match day. Now, everybody was doing their bit, but it was fabulous to see the marina. Very, very busy with families and individuals walking and cycling and taking the air. Uh, meanwhile, oh, um, it's interesting because uh, there's a lot more on um, issues involving Halloween and I see the text coming in, so I will come back to that. What are your thoughts? What are your plans for trick-or-treating or Halloween on Saturday night? We're looking for advice and we're looking for a bit of direction uh, so there can still be a fun night. Text 0868 Now remember... Uh, we have some wonderful Oakfire pizza vouchers to give away for you guys if you're contributing to the program this week and for the next few weeks. And thanks for Oakfire pizza for being on board again. And um, particularly on pumpkin patrol, are they available or is there a shortage as some people are suggesting? What there isn't a shortage, of course, is of booze. Anthony, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Interestingly, somebody says here, I saw a text coming in there saying if the off licenses were closed and the drinks aisles in supermarkets, there would be a huge run on um, beer kits. You know, the home brewing kits? Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. would be brewing their own beer. They'd be having their own wine, trying to brew, I suppose, make wine. Yeah. Uh, and maybe taking up distilling whiskey and gin. And that would be a lot more dangerous. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, I kind of feel sorry for you in a way, first of all, because you're kind of like, shoot, the messenger. Can people differentiate between the fact that you're only reading out texts and emails? Yeah, but I have have been asking the question as to how they work out what is essential and what is not. Here's another example. Could you tell me how the likes of Botox and filler clinics are open, but myself, a beautician, is closed? Surely we're all deemed under the aesthetic category. I understand that they're medical professionals, but they're not administering life-saving treatment and they're still allowed to trade. So there's another question as to what is essential and what isn't, yeah? Yeah, well, I suppose it comes down to the point as well, like before COVID, everyone's heard of 
when's the last budget that alcohol was actually put up? Cigarettes are put up constantly every budget, but alcohol is never touched for some strange reason. And we do know the strange reason. I do agree with one of your texters or emailers that said it's kind of mind control of the people. It's keeping people quiet. You know, keep them docile, keep them quiet, keep them hung over, and they'll be despondent. So you say it's, the, the reason that it's been deemed as essential is for control. Yes, I do firmly believe but that. But the guards are saying well. that there's been an 18 or 20%, I'm not sure the exact figure, increase in calls regarding domestic violence. And I would suggest that many of the domestic violence calls involve alcohol. Yeah, but I mean, you had a lovely lady on yesterday and she made a very good point. I can't remember her name now. And she said, take away alcohol, take it off the shelves in the supermarkets, take it up, close down all the off licenses, bring in prohibition, and then you'll see trouble. Then you'll see domestic violence going through the roof because it'll be like taking sweets off a child. Then you'll see problems. You'll see antisocial behavior. Do we want to go back to the days of the... What, what, what was it? It was like a puchin that they were selling in water bottles down around Oliver Plunkett Street. Yeah, by I the imagine that's probably still going on, yeah, Russian vodka and Polish vodka. Did prohibition work in America? No, I mean, listen, I, I have no axe to grind at all in the whole wide earth. Well, who would I be? I'm just an individual. The question that I've been asking is, how is it deemed as essential? It is. And I want to, people to tell me why. It is for some people. Some people like to have a nightcap. Some people will have one or two brandies. I'd often have a brandy and coffee, two or three brandy and coffees before I go to bed. And I don't see absolutely anything wrong with that whatsoever. And because you're doing it in your own home, you're not in a pub, you're not in a restaurant setting with lots of other people, it's safe. Yeah, and I'm not running out in the street tearing off me sharp, bare-chested, looking for a fight with someone or anything like that, or beating up anybody, yeah. or rolling well, and un- screaming. Unfortunately, if I had your brandies and coffees, I probably would be. You know, Some of us can't handle that kind of stuff, and, I, and I'm amongst them. But for others, though, they're responsible. Yeah, most the vast majority of people are responsible. And I mean, I hate to stigma like that, that we're all a nation of, we're a nation of alcoholics. England is just as bad as here. So the Polish are, people the drink are, all spirits yeah. and there's nothing about that, you know. There's like, I mean, why do we keep putting ourselves down as a nation of alcoholics? Who? Where's the proof we're a nation but, of alcoholics? But if you can't buy a pair of underpants or a white shirt for a funeral, but you can buy a bottle of wine, do you see the disparity and the confusion? Yeah, but whose fault is that? That's the government's fault, as somebody said as well earlier on. It's the government. It's the old mentality divide and conquer and we have people turning on each other now the pubs are sour because the off licenses are open the um the people in retail are sour because they can sell this they can sell that the hairdressers are sour the teachers now i don't think are really going to go back after the midterm break if i could bet on it i'd bet my life on it and then you'll have the public sector turning against the private sector meantime pinky and the brain Leo and Simon and the rest of them just carry on and it takes the spotlight off of them. So you don't think that alcohol is about controlling people to keep them sedate and have langers and hung over so that they won't start thinking rationally for themselves, no? You don't think that? I do, I do and I think our president is an absolute disgrace as well. What's he done now, the poor misfortune? Nothing, that's the problem. 
He I was the... just looking the fortnight ago there, actually, on Sky News and on the BBC News. And the Queen of England hasn't been outside, and she's older than him. She hasn't been outside since March, and she did a public engagement with Prince William. And she had no mask on. She went around. She was, I think it was something to do with chemical warfare or whatever, and these new sniffer dogs. She went around, she had her gloves on, she didn't wear a mask, and William didn't wear a mask either, funnily enough. Went around, and she couldn't shake hands with people, but she made the gesture to shake hands. She put out her arm, she put out her hands, but she didn't actually shake hands. What does Michael T. Higgins do? Signed a bill in to seal up records for 30 years. And before that, he signed in a water bill a couple of years ago as well. That's our socialist president. All right. What would happen then? More like Champagne Charlie, if you ask me. What would happen? Than what would ha- well? What would happen then? Do you think if they decided to close uh, the off license, that it will never happen? Incidentally, the off licenses in the pubs. What would the public never. reaction be? What would the reaction be? There would be absolute outrage. There'd be anarchy. I can guarantee you there would be anarchy. And the government are making too much on the excise duty as well. I worked in an off license when I lived up in Carisavine. And you'd have German tourists and American tourists coming in and they'd look at Middleton Rare Whiskey and this, that and the other and they'd say, oh my God, I could buy that for half the price back home. That's, and it's produced here. That's the excess. <laughs> what, about, what about a particular photograph that was sent to me yesterday of a, gir- a girl in the queue um, of a large supermarket. Can't find her right now, but uh, she refers to him as a dude and she says, uh, where the heck is that? She says um, she took actually took a photograph of his trolley in front of her. She mm-hmm. says, dude in front of me, uh, I can't buy a bra, but look what he's buying. And it's a photograph of his trolley, which is totally laden down with boxes and boxes and boxes of Heineken. Um, there is a bottle of whiskey and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight bottles of wine. I mean, it's just a trolley load of booze. What's that about? Well, I think, first of all, she should mind her own business and okay. keep her phone in her pocket. And if she wants to win, if the government do actually cop on and change their mind, and if she wants to go into Duns and buy our pennies and buy a trolley load of knickers and bras, if someone takes a picture of her, it'd be good enough for her. But what's mind he, your own business. But what's he doing with that quantity? None of our business. He could be stocking up. Okay. He could be stocking up. I mean, why did people go mad buying toilet paper? Like, there was going to be a shortage of toilet paper. Actually, you paper. are right. It is nobody's business but his own. Exactly. Was she paying for it? All right. Okay. Thanks, as always, Anthony, um, on essential items. Hi, it's very sad that we've become such a police state. We can't buy essential clothing, and we have the Guardi enforcing those daft restrictions. It's a joke. It's bad enough they're restricting our movements and these unnecessary checkpoints. It's half six in the morning, harassing people going to work. When will we wake up as a nation? We did not vote these corrupt politicians into government. They got in by default, but they're ruining the country with unnecessary measures. Another one or two. What am I doing time-wise? I'm fine. I'm sick to death of people moaning that they can't buy knickers or they can't buy socks. These are probably the same people that say shop local to save businesses. Give me a break. People just love to complain. I'm a part-time employee at a large retailer who received nothing, who received nothing but abuse because the drapery section stayed open at the beginning of the week. It's very frustrating to hear people aren't complaining that we're now closed. It wasn't the choice of the staff or the managers. 
whatever we feel personally about the situation, we're following the guidelines. The guards have been called to us many times over the past few days because of public complaints, which is very frustrating. I should also mention that the Dunn's Click and Collect is still open if there is something essential needed, I suppose, like a shirt or a bra or socks or underwear. Uh, Morning, Neil, this is all about control. All of it is. Why else would the government crush people and destroy the economy? You can buy a Christmas tree, but you can't buy a shirt. We can't do anything, Neil. It's totally crazy, and this is killing people. Suicides will increase. Society will break down as we go in and out of lockdowns, says Tony in Balancholic. We've got calls after the break. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 1850-104-106. Red FM. Uh, clearly, these decisions were made by men. Men made up the rule that hair and makeup is not an essential service for, say, a wedding. What's the point in spending a thousand euro on a photographer for a wedding if you look like Jabba the Hutt um, after doing your own hair and makeup? For feck's sake, these brides have been through enough torment. Let them have one hair and makeup artist in the room with them uh, wearing PPE. Uh, Neil, there's a petition up online now to allow brides to have their hair and makeup done. They've had 600 signatures so far. So you can have 25 at your wedding. That would include the bride and groom and the essential staff, 25 but hair and makeup services not permitted in any settings and people are annoyed about that, particularly with regards to weddings. What's the point in getting married if you can't get your hair done or you have to do it yourself? Um, I don't even think hairdressers would be able to do their own hair, would they? Maybe they can, I don't know. Uh, so if they can't do it, how would you be expected to do it for a big day like that? Anyway, lines are open at one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. Hazel, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Um, tell me all about uh, the Street Angels Homeless Group out on Monday nights. Um, well, we go out and we feed the homeless right. every second Monday night. Where Are you Are you guys um, around uh, the Ulster Bank, is it? No, we set up outside the Savoy every the Savoy. second Monday night. All right, good stuff, okay. Across from, from Thomas's. And how's it um, been? how has it been over the last few months? It's, we have busy times, and then in the last two weeks it's been very quiet, but I believe that they've been put into B&Bs for the lockdown. Right. Which is, in one sense, it's a good sign when we don't see them, because we know they're looked at. They're not in tents or in ditches or in hovels or in squats. Yeah. 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 Um, But you have the few that won't go into um, the... The hostels and Simon, Simon and, and the Vincent de Paul. Because, yeah. you know, because drugs and things, yeah. And they're yeah. afraid of, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, um. Monday yeah, night, yeah. a lovely gesture. What happened? Uh, Monday night, well, Monday, Monday. we were packing the car, and a friend of mine um, said um, she's going to have a surprise. And I said, oh, grand, grand, you know, bring it on. And, um, the, Aaron and Tegan's little two kids in Mallow and decided that instead of them going out, well, they couldn't go out trick-or-treating, they'd ask their friends and that, would they, you know, donate stuff to them? And they made up 50 trick-or-treat bags. And it came boxes. I have pictures. I'll forward them on to you. Mm-hmm. Um, they arrived with two boxes of trick-or-treat treat bags, two boxes of Rice Krispie buns, four 
food parcels and toys and things. And I was blown away, you know, for kids wanting. Now, I think they're only about six, seven and ten or something. Right. And they decided they wanted to think of others other than themselves. That's a lovely gesture, and I'm sure that absolutely it was, yeah. amazing. So, and did you give them? Out. Have you given them all out already? I have given half of them out on Monday night, and I'm going down out tonight to see the homeless in Limerick, and we're outside Williams or Debenhams on O'Connell Street. Lovely gesture. And, yeah, and it's in contrast to others who are going around smashing up and vandalising people's... That's what I can't understand. When I just heard you coming yeah. and saying how children are breaking, like, here's two kids that are thinking of others other than themselves and giving so much goodness back to... it. You know, it puts faith into my heart that there is people out there that absolutely well done well done to those still, they're still stunning us you know and we're also doing a makeover um my volunteers got donated 100 euros in Limerick and we're doing a makeover for one man homeless and a woman okay the line is breaking up but uh, can, can listen continued success with the wonderful volunteer work you're doing and also to those kids for that fabulous gesture in contrast with the others who are going around smashing up people's displays um, and, uh, and and pumpkins and what have you so that is a lovely story happy to share it um, a story that is far from happy of course of the events over the past few days down in Cantark Barry Roach joins me by phone Barry good morning from the Irish Times um, and, and of course um, the state pathologist is clearly involved and there's been two and now we'll be a third autopsy to conclude the autopsies at some stage this morning am I right? I'd say it might go into this afternoon Liam okay. Neil um, okay. I gather Dr. Bolts was starting the post-mortem on Mark O'Sullivan the older son uh, about 10 so I would imagine there's a couple of hours in that so it might go into the afternoon yesterday she completed the post-mortems on the father Tyke O'Sullivan and the younger son Dermot and found um that they both died from single gunshot wounds to the head, and the belief, uh, Gardis, the guard of belief, is that they uh, uh, took their own lives uh, in the field near the ferry fort. Uh, as listeners will be aware, in this whole tragedy, uh, a neighbour told Gardy when they arrived at the scene around half seven or so on Monday morning that he'd heard two shots sometime earlier. So the belief is that they took their own lives around that time. The ballistics investigation by Guard detecting experts will be critical in this as well because they hope to examine the two rifles that were recovered beside them uh, and examine those, test those for DNA and fingerprint evidence as to who had what gun. They will then seek to try and match the uh, shells and the bullets found from those guns with uh, the, uh, the, 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 the match that was found on the bodies, as it were, with I know. the there were two. They had a shotgun each. Is that? They shotgun each, but you know, casings leave striations and these marks, and each gun has it. You know, I suppose I, I know it. Sorry, I know it. I, I've seen it on television in mm. various crime dramas and, and that sort of thing. And yeah. that's, so that's how they match that up. Then the post mortem will is taking place today. And Marcus Sullivan, my understanding is, got to believe he was shot a number of times. Again. Dr. Bolster's uh, post-mortem will be critical in this, but also then in terms of the forensics from the two guns in relation to the wounds that he suffered and the uh, casings recovered at the 
then again, the forensics on the fingerprints and so forth to match the guns with the two dead men. Yes. So that's all happening. I suppose what was interesting yesterday in terms of things that emerged was the fact that they found on Dermot a very lengthy uh, parent suicide note um, running to about 12 pages, so which was strapped to his thigh, in which he outlined the grievances that I think he and his father had over proposed or perceived grievances they had over the inheritance of the farm and that would suggest from what I can understand from Garda sources that they had been planning this for some time it wasn't quite a spur of the moment thing now whether that letter was written uh, Marco Sullivan shot about 6.40am on Monday the shots were heard the two which Garda believed killed the two men about 7.25 7.30 so there's 45-50 minutes there whether that letter was written in that time period or whether it was written prior to all this yeah. It's not clear, and what exactly it says, obviously I'm not familiar with either, but the gist of it, as I understand it, was that uh, it seems to have been a planned uh, killing of Mark by Dermot and his father. Um, because Dermot yeah. felt that, what, what do we understand about this, that Dermot felt he was being cut out of uh, Yeah, there, there, there are varying versions of it, um, about, and there's a whole issue about um, husbands' entitlements. The farm was owned, or inherited by Anne O'Sullivan, the mother, who obviously is dealing with all this trauma and tragedy now. Um, and Ty Gosalvin would have married into the farm. But my understanding is the family home, uh, I suppose, has an entitlement to, I think, one third of that. But the land then would be a separate thing, as I understand it. And I, might, I could stand corrected in this if there are some lawyers there out there who are obviously more familiar with succession law and inheritance. Uh, you know, you might talk to them on that. But my understanding is the fear or the perception by by Dearman and possibly by Tyg was that uh, Dearman was going to be cut out or he wasn't going to get what he felt was his due we'll say he may have actually got some land but maybe not the land that he wanted to get there's uncertainty and confusion about the actual nature of the grievance yes. that it related to yeah. a will yeah. uh, so we, we, we know or believe we know that Mark and his mother had been out of the house for some period of time yeah, that there was legal letters and, and things like that yeah they she had gone to Dublin, I, I thought it was last week, but actually it been about three or four weeks ago she'd gone to Dublin for some serious surgery, had been discharged from hospital in Dublin, had returned to Castle Magnor, but had not returned to the family home and actually had stayed with relatives in Castle Magnor for two weeks. Yeah. So that's quite a lengthy time to be out of the family home. My understanding is that locks were changed. Now, whether it's locks on gates and doors, I'm not sure, but uh, I described to me as locks and property were changed. But on Sunday, they decided to move back into the house Sunday night. And then obviously the tragedy began to unfold at 6.40am on Monday morning. Um, and then what we know in terms of the, the, the siege and the standoff and so forth, or sorry, the guard being called in establishing yeah. cordon and not knowing whether or not they were in a siege situation and waiting for several hours, I mean, from half seven until about one. But, you know, they couldn't take that risk. And I was talking to some guardy about this and they said, like, it's a really hard call to make. You know, you, you have a report that somebody's been shot in there. You don't know are they alive or dead. They might be alive, but could be in a bleeding out, for example. Do you move in and risk a, a shootout with somebody who may have guns and maybe intend to use them or may harm themselves? So eventually, after five hours of attempted negotiation in terms of a trained negotiator calling into the house and getting no response, they eventually decided to move. The whole in, the actual operational side of it was... I found uh, I learned a lot talking to people about it in the sense that you have the um, armed support unit who are based in Cork. Uh, there's also an armed support unit in Wharf 
Waterford, Limerick, and Castle. Um, Morris, sorry. So they, were, they came from that far, from Mayo Down. So there were about 20 personnel from the armed support unit who would all be equipped to use firearms in these uh, circumstances. But what a, what a que- is there a question being asked as to why they didn't search a greater area of land that morning then? Well, they, they weren't sure whether there were people in the house I see. or not, yeah. in the, and in, okay. in the hostage situation. But then they were joined by the armed support unit from Dublin, who were sort of at a higher level again in terms of training. Seven of them came down by chopper, by an aircraft helicopter, and arrived at 12 o'clock. They then took the lead there, and they were joined by, I think, another 13 or so who came by road. And because it was bank holiday, traffic was quiet, and I suppose, on COVID as well, they were able to get down by road relatively quickly. So you had this inner cordon about 50 to 100 metres back, watching the house, where you would have been... Um, the armed support unit from Dublin who are the sort of real specialists the emergency sorry the emergency response yeah. unit from Dublin were there had a certain level of, of tactical training for this then supported by the armed support units from Cork, Waterford, Limerick and Clare Morris and the other interesting thing was the HSE actually have a team of advanced trained paramedics to deal with firearm wounds and injuries they were choppered in by a Coast Guard helicopter from the chopper came from Dublin, I think the team came from Cork, but they actually are equipped with bulletproof vests and helmets and everything like that to go into a situation where there may be people with gunshot wounds and they were on standby to go in with the... But what we know ERU now is that... And the ASU, but as it turned out, they, they weren't needed because, because they went in at yeah. one o'clock, they had simply found the body of Mark in the house and he was pronounced dead. There were also two consultants in emergency medicine on standby. So, you know, there were serious resources put into this, you'd have to say. But, but the, the investigation was, now is an investigation to determine um, who fired which gun at whom, is it? Yeah, who fired which gun at whom and the sequence of them, I suppose. I mean, it would seem pretty clear that obviously Mark was shot first, but who shot him? The belief, as I understand it, is that he'll have multiple uh, post-mortem to show he had a number of gunshot wounds. So whether they're all fired from the one weapon or whether they're from two weapons, suggesting two people killed them, that has to be established today. Well, sorry, Dr. Bolster's findings will go some way towards that, but the ballistics then will go the rest of the way, the Gardaí hope, to the extent that that's possible. And then the other question is, the other crime scene, as it were, which is the shooting of the two, um, Tyg and Dermot, in the field, uh, in what appears to be a suicide pact, is, did they both, did each man shoot himself? Yes. Oh my God. Or did they shoot each other simultaneously? Or did one man shoot the other with his consent and then shoot him? Oh my God. There's that sort of sequence to be worked out and it's going to be the ballistics that are going to um, hopefully from a guard point of view establish that I suppose the other side of it all is that they're not looking for anybody else in this so it's not sort of your usual murder investigation sense that there's pressure on to there's nobody in custody for example that they have to do ballistic tests quickly so that will take time I I gather in the normal course it could take a couple of weeks so that picture won't emerge for some time but uh, you know I was down there again yesterday now in a huge sense of numbness and shock there I was talking to a guy in the GA club and he was sort of saying there was a media blackout but he said you know bad news travels fast and it does and was breaking out and then when the helicopter started landing the GA pitch they knew there was something I know but the more you stop and think about it it's the the absolute disbelief that something like this could happen you know yeah yeah. within the one family in the one family and and I mean I I wasn't I'm not sure if the immediate house the house is still cordoned off incidentally they recovered um, they recovered a third 
the double barrel shotgun, but they don't believe that was involved or featured in the, the tragedy at all. But it's still cordoned off and technical examination going on there. So I wasn't down there, but I gather it's actually down about half a mile down a very narrow bore reed. So, it, you know, it's not immediately visible from the village or anything like that. It's a good distance from the village, but at the same time, people there were still trying to come to terms with it, not just in Castle Magnar, but in Kentucky. All of us, just all of us. Yellow. And Everyone. even a friend of mine in the States, I was talking to her last night, she'd been on to her sisters living here in the city, and like that's what they were talking about. It was just such a state of shock that something like this could could um, unfold, you know, and uh, who knows what... Sorry, just to go back to the point you made about solicitor's letters. Yeah, my understanding is that they found solicitor's letters in the house, but the situation had deteriorated, deteriorated in recent weeks to the point that they were sending... Um, solicitor's letters to each other over the whole issue of the inheritance so it obviously had really really worsened considerably well maybe assurances had been made that it was okay to come home I don't know I don't don't know that and I mean a lot will obviously depend on Gardy when they get to speak to Anne O'Sullivan obviously at the moment we have funeral situations still pending and the postmortem is still ongoing as it were and you know Gardy I think would be very sensitive as to um, approaching her in a manner with, where she and seems confident and comfortable enough to talk absolutely and bear in mind that she is she is distraught with also, grief and yeah. she's also she's also uh, ill as, as I understand it oh, so, you know so. there's a lot of things to be factored into that um, so they're going to approach her with great caution the family liaison officer still working or uh, liaising with her on behalf of the family and I think she's okay. relatives but okay. it's, um, it's a, a horrible story and Absolutely. Listen, thanks for the update, Barry. As always, do appreciate it. Barry Roach with the uh, Irish Times and his full coverage of the front and inside pages of today's Irish Times newspaper. We're back after 11. Imro Music Station of the Year. You're on Cork's Red FM. It's a bit of a joke that people are ringing in, complaining about Duns. They're the only ones uh, open during the last lockdown and we were taking abuse of all kinds from people. And now that we've had to close off the clothing section and the guards are in every couple of hours checking that it's closed, I can understand people are frustrated, but so are us, the staff. You must remember, we're people too. It's ridiculous and embarrassing, this carry-on. Duns are clearly following the guidelines and the guards have been in and out multiple times. I can't believe people are kicking up a fuss over the likes of slippers. It's madness altogether. Online is still op- an option for any store of your preference. Get on to Hall Martin if you're upset about your pyjamas. What do you expect clothing stores to do? Go against the guards and the government? Can I just say, Neil, the Tom Murphy menswear on Patrick Street have a collection uh, from the shop or have a collection from the shop or same-day delivery around the locality in Cork. You can get your and needs from Tom Murphy Menswear on 4272401 or social media platforming as well. Uh, morning, I work in deals and we will be closing. They've probably done it already. The clothes department. We got told yesterday that we'd be closing in a few days. Um, another one here. I can get a takeaway and a hot whiskey from a pub, but I can't go into Dunn's and get a pair of knickers. And since when can you buy knickers or even a white shirt from a boutique? says Mary. People bashing Duns unnecessarily. Duns would go to the ends of the earth to help people. They're just following the directions they've been given by the government. That's why you can't buy a white shirt for a funeral. Uh, did people not buy their children's winter coats in September when they started school or before lockdown? It's the end of October. People should have realized winter is coming. Uh, do you know why you can't buy pumpkins now? My three-year-old was looking for one to carve when we were told in a supermarket that it is a non-essential item. <laughs> I don't know, but it's essential. Come on.
pumpkins are essential. Mind you, people saying all the pumpkins that I was talking about in Aldi's are sold out now. But keep those um, Halloween trip, uh, tricks and treats and plans um, if you're adapting Halloween on Saturday night. Uh, do share if you have advice as to people who could uh, uh, like to do something for Halloween might be able to do so. The community guards were calling into shops in a shopping centre in Cork yesterday. It's not the shop's fault that they can't sell these items. Don't be making a deal, uh, a big deal of the silliness of people not being able to buy a shirt. This is a government decision. So there's reams and reams like that. Happy to pass on some more between now and midday. Text 0868104106. Now, they tell me uh, that I have an email on this, but unfortunately I can't put my hand on it right now. Morris, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Do you think that after this week the schools will go back next week or not? Um, I think they should and they will go back, I think. They should be. Um I don't see any reason why. Us there as postmen, we're out here every day and we see, we meet kids, we meet families and um, we have to put our fears aside and attend, you know, keep things going. You're not meeting anybody though, you see, that's the difference. Yes, yeah, but um, in the situation, well, well, put it this way, my point being was with your last caller, if teachers are not going to go back, um, which I would totally respect their decision not to go back if they do take that but they should go into COVID payment like everyone else mm. Mm. because like there seems to be law for everyone else like the last time that, the last lockdown that we had like they had uh, their full wages like and there was people out there had no jobs and they were down to the COVID payment but the teachers did say that they weren't sitting on their hands during all of that that they were working with their students and uh, planning um, projects and sending out homework and, you know, doing Zoom calls and stuff. Well, yes, I'm getting, they were yeah. technically working from home, you know. Well, yeah, true. I, I've seen that myself and I've heard about it and I've spoke to some teachers about it. But still, let them go into payment, the COVID payment, and be paid for the, the bit of work that they do do. Accordingly, as what they do. As a, as, a, as a postman, are you in an urban area or are you a postman rurally? Oh, I'm a rural in a rural area. Okay, and are you finding people struggling? Yes, big time. Um, like the big thing, we we do have people have writing letters to themselves. Uh, did you really come across that? Well, I had it three years ago as well, when a woman would always she was always write a letter, and um, she'd always have the cup of tea ready, and. Mara, um, she would write a letter, go and post it, knowing that yeah. you would deliver it back to her. And have a cup of tea. Yes, just to have a shout and say hello and give her the news of the day. You know what I mean? In relation, if someone had passed away or someone locally is sick, you know. Um, and you knew what she was doing, and you were you were played along with it. No trouble at all. You know what I mean? Like, that's what that's what us postmen do. Like we just go to the, you know, um, we go to extra lengths just to look after people. Um, we've no problem with it at all, and you know, we love meeting people and listening to them. You know what I mean? Is and if they need a few messages, bread, milk, bring the paper, we'll do that as well, you know. You check in or knock on the door to see if, you know, if there was somebody oh, in yes, there. Yeah. You'd always see, like, you'd know whether the curtain is pulled or whether there might be a bit of steam from the kettle on the window. If the steam wasn't there, you'd say, oh, God, she didn't open your cage today, you know. And you check? Oh, you got yes. Oh, God, that's with every postman. Like, they're fantastic guys, you know what I mean? And these days now, what people want is just a bit of communication, a bit of chat, because they're alone. Yes. And are they worried? Do you come across people who are frightened? Um, all, there is people frightened, but they're more or less frightened that there's no one calling or there's no interaction. 
if you know what I mean. Um, if people did call like this, uh, how can I put it? Um, what can I say? How can I put it? People are very upset at times, like, you know what I mean? When normal calling. Yeah, and yeah. And the worst part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Family, uh, interaction friends. is Interaction is a big thing, like. Um, like, you'll be wondering there if someone got COVID within your area. You have to get this stigma out of it, like, it's, it's a virus. It's going to fix people more than some. Yeah. In time, it's going to pass, you know what I mean? And like, do you tell them that when you call to the door saying, you know... Oh, this God, yes, they're like, you know, we possibly would reassure them that in your area, we're, we're very good. You know, people are healthy. And we don't know of no one that is seeking within the area, you know what I mean? So for some, you're the only person they see. All big time. And I can tell you, like, my, my area is not too bad, but there's other rural areas. And I know one guy, a friend of mine, and he could travel between 10 miles between one house to another within oh, his area. Mother of God. You know? I was way um, down, I was way down in Sheep's Head during the summer. Um, and you know, that's very rural and there's little boreens and, you know, very uneven paths to people's houses yeah, yeah. that could be miles long. And I came across a postman in a van in an area where there was no houses whatsoever. And he driving down this long rickety road to get to a house at the end of it miles away. Yes, yeah. And he will go there to the end of the earth if that was, you know, he will go there, he or she will go there to make sure that chicken them people are bringing the post to them, you know. But what happens if you have somebody who you know is alone at these times and you don't have a letter for them? Do you still call? Oh, God, you would, yes, yeah. Go away, really? Oh, God, yes, yeah. You, you, it's like, you'd have to say, like, you'd call for the cup of tea, you know. In respect now to some families, they would say, like, you know, like, we prefer not to call to mem or someone, or we have someone calling, you know. That's all right then, yeah. You know, yes, but then again, normally we would call, like, you know. So you'd knock on the door and step back a bit and just have the old step chat. Back a bit and check, have the old chat. And then, like, to refuse a cup of tea within a house as a postman, like, is an insult to the person in the house, you know. It must mean you're drinking, you drink an awful lot of tea. God, I don't mind. Then the old apple cat to be nice, throwing a bit of cream, like. <laughs> but you, but clearly you can't do that now. You just have to keep your no, distance. God, no, 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 God, no. But you just make sure you check, like you know. Yeah, even if you don't have a letter or a parcel, you'll still check yeah. in on someone. Oh God, yes, you would, yes. You, you'd spot the moment in the house, and it'll be a little bit might be out of place, you know. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Oh, you know, that's the work they do. But even just to go back to my point, like I do, I do respect the teachers for what they do and the work they do, though. But accordingly, if they're on the COVID payment and the work they do then at home, be paid accordingly for that. Don't be given the full wages. Okay, all right. Good point. And I'm delighted we got to chat about the difference that you make in people's lives as a postman. Can I just say, um, I have these wonderful meat hampers from Tom Durkin's in the English market. They're full of yeah. all sorts of goodies, including a spiced beef and steak and chops and burgers and chicken fillets. I'd love yes. to get one to you and your family just for the kind work that you're doing. Is that okay with you? I, I would be absolutely delighted, Neil. I don't know whether or not you're handy in the kitchen, are you? Um, I, I just dabble. It might burn a bit. I might destroy a start for October. My wife is very good. Now well, would you very. please give it to your wife then? Because I don't want you to wreck this. So, listen, well done on the work that you're doing, Morris. And thank you so much for your service. But uh, stay on hold so I can get a postal address and organize one of these hampers for you. Okay. Lovely. Thank you very much, Neil. You're welcome. Stay in touch, Morris the Postman. That's the good work that people do. 
uh, for no thanks uh, or no reward. So it's always nice to give something back. Can I just say that Tom Durkin Meats, the award-winning craft butchers, specialize in sourcing and finding the finest of quality local meats. And that's what these hampers are full of. So um, the meat box actually will do two of you right across the week, you know, something different on a, on a daily basis. The mince steak, the diced steak, pork chops, strip loins, uh, sirloins, chicken fillets, and a kilo of Blossna Heron's gold award-winning Tom Durkin's Spiced Beef. So that's from ours, and we'll give away some more just before midday today. You can visit Tom Durkin's and everybody at the English market. They're open for business, and you can order online, either for now or for the Christmas time, or both, tomdurkinmeets.ie. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at neilredfm. 104 to 106 Red FM. Thank you for this email. He says, it's obviously a very sensitive issue and my thoughts are with the family at this time in Kantark. I'm from a rural area in Kerry and unfortunately many farmers and farming families are constantly arguing and disputing over land and the handing over of the farm. I personally know of a few cases and some who haven't spoken for over 20 years because of land. It's a very sad but a very contentious issue in Ireland. It always was and always will be, unfortunately. My best friend ended up leaving home and currently lives overseas as he was the only son but had no interest in taking on the farm. His father couldn't understand that and their relationship severely suffered as a result. Again, the mother was devastated because she was stuck in the middle and it was very, very sad. I was talking to him about this last night. He's just thankfully got away when he did and is now very successful overseas. And good luck to him. You should always follow your own path, lads. I mean, good God Almighty. That's the most important thing. You want to be at all, always, if at all possible, to be trying to do something that you enjoy. Why are you allowing the children of our country to take the brunt of the criticism during the pandemic? Am I? I'm talking about the lady you had on air who was saying the children are hanging around in groups. While I can understand people's frustrations, why is it okay for children to be in school where they're breathing the same air as each other? When you look at the children who are outside, it looks much safer being outside in the fresh air than being stuck in a classroom. When the government can come together and give the example of how to do things correctly, then maybe the people of the country will follow with their example. By the way, my son is 26. He has one friend that he visits on the weekend. My son is living in the same house as us, but at 26, he doesn't want to be spending time with his parents. I think I understand this, but the older you get, the more independent you get. So should I lock our son up in my house? His friend lives on his own and is on his own all week. What I'm saying is that you have people on air criticizing the youth of the country, and I think it's not the youth that should be criticized, it's the government. Um, and they have done a great job in deflecting the criticism away from themselves. And there are people arguing over stupid issues such as children playing outside. What a country we've become. I, I actually believe that this time around, there's a bigger percentage of people who aren't abiding by the rules that you've just described there. Um, for some, they get it and they understand how they need to behave when they're around people. And for others, they've just had enough of it. Lines open on that. Text 0868104106. To the phone lines we go again. Elaine, thanks for holding. Hi, Neil. How are so, you? thank you. This is given some examples of issues involving schools and school-going kids. You think we have an obsession on the topic of schools? Is it? I suppose maybe obsession is the wrong word. Um, I just feel there's an awful lot of negativity as regards school staff um, at the moment. I mean, I'm an SNA in primary school myself. We all SNAs found the last lockdown very, very difficult. Um, as the, a lot of the children we work with 
need us more in person than over a screen or a phone. It wouldn't work, I know. Yeah. No, yeah. it's very hard. And I mean, we I only know for myself and the SNAs I worked with, we made a lot of moving break videos and calls and story videos. You know, we did, I mean, we did work throughout the lockdown when, when we were supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about this time now? What are your thoughts now? Um, personally, I would prefer to go to work. I mean, I love my job. I have no issue with my job. But I suppose what a lot of the school staff want are more clarity, more honesty about the cases that are in schools. Um, you know, there are a lot of us there with underlying health conditions. There's some of us with families at home with underlying health conditions. And... We are now. I'm. I'm different. I'm in a unit, but we still have kids. You know, they're crawling on you. You, you have changing to do. You know, some kids are feeding. You know, we're not. We all want to work. We have no issue with going into our jobs. We just want to feel safe. Mm. You know, and it is. It's very hard. The other side of it is, it's a very hard thing to make school safe. You know, because there are there supposed to be pods but you know you're still in a classroom that's quite small but but you know what I mean? primary and secondary school teachers wouldn't be involved in any physical activity with their students but, <laughs> but you but you would be I, yeah well I suppose this needs would have a lot more physical, physical aspect interaction yeah, yeah, yeah we would yeah yeah and does that not does that concern you um honestly yes it does um I suppose I wouldn't have a major underlying health condition as other people. I would be asthmatic, but I suppose there is still a risk there for myself. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, I'm doing all my precautions that I'm supposed to be doing and wearing my PPE and you know washing my hands. You know, and other than that, you're really putting your hands in the parents, the you know these children's parents to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do on is their. There is a gamble. There's a lottery in it, like. There is, there is a huge gamble, um, a huge risk, but I can say from a lot of SNAs and my own personal, that we want to be in work. We don't want to be at home, we, we want to be in work with the kids, giving them the education that they need, but we want the government as well to help us as well, you know, and be honest and clear with us and not change the guidelines halfway through when you're back, you know. Do you think that the schools will go back next week? Well, I do anyway. I don't. I haven't heard anything that we're not, and I don't. I don't see why we shouldn't. I suppose the other side with parents as well. Like my children are not mixing with any of their friends other than in school. Obviously, outside school they're not. How old are they? They're thirteen, eleven, and six. Yeah. Okay. Well, try and try and control them that way when they're sixteen, seventeen years old. Well, yes, I understand that, but I suppose you, as a parent, you're still their parent. You still have to explain this is this is a pandemic. No one has gone through this before. You can see your friends in school, that's fine. But outside school, you kind of have to put in a boundary. You have to stay at home to a degree. You, you can't mix. And I mean, there are lots of kids out. And I understand it. I mean, I have it from my own tree. They're complaining they want to be out with their friends. But I suppose... I'm trying to do the best I can and keep them safe and That's not so have them yeah. spread it. You know what I mean? And so far, so good. Thanks, Elaine. I want to get the thoughts of Laura, who's a junior infant teacher. Laura, good morning. Hi, how are you? What, what is the plan for next week? Do you know? Well, as far as I know, we're going back as normal. Um, we did 
we were told that a lot of the older kids would bring home books um, for midterm, but they were going to do it. They were going to do a deep clean, um, and I asked about the junior infants. I said, kind of didn't make much sense sending the whole lot of them out with a big pile of books. They wouldn't be able to carry them. <laughs> First See, the, all, thought, so. the thought last week when we heard that was they were being told bring everything home because they weren't coming back. Well, I think I don't think principals knew at the time. I think it was like, they don't know. I suppose they didn't know what way the numbers were going to go through the week. We were told that we're hoping and we're, you know, I suppose we'd be 75% sure that we're going back on Monday. This was last week. And as of now, I think we're definitely going back. Yeah. Um, yeah. which is the best thing because really. they've said overnight that schools are a safe environment so on that basis well, the only people that will stop teachers going back now will be teachers and their union but you see I, I, this is I, I listened to this all last week these unions and like personally speaking I think they're they're mostly secondary school unions um, like our own like there is talks within our own ones but majority of our staff that I've spoken to all last week, we all want to be in school. We don't want to be at home. We're happy to keep a bit of normality for the kids that we're working with and it's a bit of normality for ourselves. We know we're at risk, but like you're going to have to take a risk. Do you know, you can't, it, like, it's going to be here for another long time. We, we can't all... So this is not being driven by food. teachers, you're saying, who just want time off? No, no, not in a million years. I'd rather be at work any day. Even the, the midterm, like what's the point in the midterm at the moment when we can't go anywhere and do anything yes we're all exhausted and we we were looking forward to having a break but at the same time I'm, I, I pray to God that we'll be going back on Monday morning because people are suggesting that if the teachers don't go back next week they should all be put on the COVID payment like everybody else which is fair enough but we, well we'll still be working I mean we have we've been putting things in place for the last few weeks just adding to what would have been done back in March, April, May when we were working from home so we've just been we'll be doing courses now soon to to get even more familiar with the programmes because there's difference there's Google Classroom and the Seesaw depending on what schools are, are working with so I mean we're still putting in the hours there to do work to, to prepare ourselves if it, if it goes to that so we will be working we will be interacting every day But there must the, be teachers saying I have an underlying health condition or I'm living with somebody who has or I'm asthmatic or I have a weak heart or you know I have diabetes and there must be well, some I'd, worries I'd say so there definitely is but like not from people that I have spoken to I mean where like I'm teach I'm working with young kids so we're highly exposed. So like I, I'd say if I had an underlying condition, I wouldn't I, I don't think I would be able to work with the exposure I have because I mean I have four and five year olds coming up and hugging me on a daily basis no matter how many times you tell them. And in the past have you got in the past have you picked anything up? Have you got sick, like got a cold or flu or anything? Yeah, every two or three times a year I'd get I get laryngitis or sore throats or things like that, but that's from constant singing and talking and the whole lot during the day. Like that just comes with the job. It's just strain on the voice. Yeah. 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 Do you know? Yeah. But you wouldn't have been picking up infections or anything from kids in the past. No, yeah. nothing major, and and I mean you are you are dealing with like you young kids. You have a lot of snotty noses in the in the winter. Do you know you are cleaning them. You are you like you have, I suppose now you have to be safe with constant washing. The minute you see a sneeze, they're gone up to the tap to the sink to wash their hands. But I mean that's the norm. That's always been the norm with kids that age. You have to. That's part and parcel with the job if you're working with young children. Do you know? You would acknowledge that you're a risk then, but you'd rather mm-hmm. be working than at home. Yeah, 100%. Okay, thanks for that. Appreciate it, Laura. Much obliged. Lines open at one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. Text 086-8104-106. Pick up the phone on, uh, sorry, email neil at redfm.ie and that's what a lot of people are doing, including um, B. 
big amount of emails and different topics over the recent uh, week or so. Uh, getting in touch with you, Neil, about the woman who contacted your show about her husband. Um, this is regarding the issues involving um, how sometimes men um, react negatively to the arrival of a child. I, too, was placed in that same situation when I gave birth to my child. No support from the one person I needed from the most. I never felt so lost and alone. Uh, and like your other writers, I, too, was ashamed to tell anyone. I carried it like a heavy load on my shoulders until the weight eventually, eventually plunged me into depression. I begged my partner to seek help as it was obvious that he wasn't bonding with our child, but instead he turned his back on me, saying I was the one that needed the help. So I sought help and I went to counselling. I went to my GP, I got support and got stronger on myself. This eventually led me to think more clearly and I asked myself some very difficult questions. It was my hormones that had gone through the different stages of pregnancy and giving birth, not his. His body wasn't affected at all. If he wanted this child as much as he claimed to, why wasn't he willing to do everything in his power to bond with our baby? And the most important question was, how could he truly love me if he couldn't love this miracle that we created together? This child is as much part of him as me, and he wasn't capable of loving his own flesh and blood. Maybe he didn't love himself enough, but how could that be? How could that be sorted if you refused to seek help or advice? Well, it got to the stage that if the baby needed a bottle, he suddenly needed my attention urgently. If the baby got sick, he was suddenly sicker. You get the gist. It was pure jealousy of my time given to our baby. I had enough, uh, so his encouragement for me to seek help gave me the mental and emotional strength to ditch him. He's now very much my ex. Tell women to tell everyone they know the way people behave, and particularly the woman uh, who wrote to you first time. Tell that woman to tell everyone she knows the way he or her husband is behaving, and no one will judge her for it. If he still refuses to seek help, then leave him. Believe me, it's a lot easier looking after a child alone than having to look after them with a jealous, drunken, immature man lying on a couch. One last word of advice. If she does choose to leave, don't under any circumstances turn the child against his father. Wait and let the child make up his own mind when he's old enough. That's your child's right. And just one more on that. I'm emailing about the conversations you had about the couples with the newborn. Um, I work as a midwife and I see the joy couples experience every day on becoming a family. I feel the biggest problem here is lack of communication. I would think that the man had a vision how life would be once the baby arrived and how involved he would be. The reality, unfortunately, is probably very different. It doesn't state in your email, particularly your first one, if the baby is being breastfed. But if this is the case, this isn't something, for example, that can be shared. Breastfeeding, obviously, is the optimal feeding option for the baby, but can make some partners feel pushed to the side, which then leads on to the partner getting less involved and feeling resentment. Please note, I'm not at all against breastfeeding before people say, but I understand how parents may feel, sorry, how partners may feel isolated. The mom then feels like her partner has no interest in helping and she in turn stops asking for help and other tasks and takes on all responsibility of the caring for the baby. Can't you see it becomes a vicious circle really? And as long as no one speaks out, it will just get worse and the mom will feel that he doesn't love the baby. I know she said she tried to speak to him, but maybe she could try again, as the first line of defense is always to blame the other person, which is what he did first time round. She needs to tell him she needs and wants his help, 
and that there is so much that he could be involved in with his new baby. I do wish them well going forward and hope this can be resolved, says a concerned mom and a midwife. I mean, if you're to look at it, if you look at it from the outside, just looking in, you think that there's an element of spoiled brat. You know, when you look at it, like, say, why can't he cop himself on and realize, you know, that, um, like, oh, you're breastfeeding the baby um, and I feel left out. I mean, that, that to me is just an irrational thought. But clearly people, some people seem to feel that. Um, I mean, I mean, it's a huge change when a baby comes into a home, of course. And, and I think that the, the advance of that, of course, is looking forward to it, that everything's going to be just so fabulous and so rosy and a great adventure. And it is in many ways. But it's a lot of hard work. And I suppose when you when you start to see the amount of work that is involved in, in a new baby, maybe some partners then say, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed by this. I didn't realize there was so much involved. Anyway, lines are open on that, uh, and I see more emails and texts coming on that every single day. Um, text 0868104106. My God, Laura, the teacher, tells us she's exhausted after being off for the summer holidays. Um, I never, <laughs> I never heard of a rational argument as to how any teacher could be exhausted. What do the rest of us do that don't have midterm, Easter, or summer holidays? Be kind now. Be kind. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 1850-104-106. There's more more of those. Teachers exhausted, are they? What about the rest of us that don't have midterm, Easter and Christmas breaks or huge summer holidays? Give me a break. People also want a break. I think this is rather hurtful when you think of it. Jar says he's listening over in Artfert. He says, get all of those people who are depressed off your show. They have three square meals a day. They're supported by the state. What have they got to be depressed about? In other countries, they have no food, water, electricity and so on. A kick up the butt is all they should get, says Gerard Furt. Uh, be kind, pal. Isn't it the old adage of walk in my shoes, isn't it? Think about that. Actually, you know, you're talking about, it's, it's interesting. You talk about being kind. I came across, somebody sent me a screen grab there recently of uh, something that kicked off online um, to do with chivalry, you know, and, and it's about being kind or men thinking that they are being kind and doing the right thing. You know, all of the mixed messages we're getting now and how men get more and more confused as to how they should behave or what they should do or what they shouldn't do. It, it said, and this was uh, apparently something that was addressed to men. It said, dear men, it said, stop holding the door open for women when entering a store or a shop or an office. This implies that you believe women are incapable of doing things for themselves and that you view us women as incompetent. Uh, Holding the door open for a woman means that they're incompetent and can be compared to buckling the seatbelt of a toddler or putting a leash on a dog. Um, And apparently that all kicked off then as to whether or not the age of chivalry is dead or not, or whether to be chivalrous is actually showing that you're anti-feminist. Um, and we actually po- posted that then on our own pages there recently as to whether you think a man holding a door open for a woman, holding her chair for her when she sits down, like, you know, for instance, giving up your seat for a woman. Are they, are they lovely things? Are they chivalrous? Are they mannerly? Are they manly? Or are they outdoor, outmoded gestures of politeness um, and that they should be banished. You know, we have issues now involving um, slavery and the past and slavery and people who were attached to slavery and buildings now they're starting to hone in on buildings that were owned by people who were slavers. Now the world is changing in those regards. 
Uh, maybe I'm overstepping the mark making a comparison there. But the age of chivalry, should we hold doors open? Um, you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Anyway, um, let me get some phone calls on that. Noreen, good morning. Good morning. Um, your thoughts on this, please. Does it does does it still happen? I don't think it happened as much as it used to, but I wish it would. But not just in terms of men doing it for our women. I think everyone should be doing it for each other. You know, when I was growing up, my father, if we went for walks together, my father would always walk on the outside. And I said to him one day, why do you always walk on the outside? And he said, well, if I get hit by a car, you'll be protected. And to me, that speaks volumes. What you do, a small act like that, actually shows how much someone cares about you. And yeah, yeah but that's... My children now. That's, I know what you just described there with regards to what your dad did, but that's the kind of thing that would dad do, would do to protect his loved ones. Yeah, but I think it's the same kind of thing. If you're holding a door open for someone, you're saying, I see you and I'm going to make your day a little bit easier for you. Yeah, or you could be Donna who says, I was abused by a woman one day for holding a door open for her. She told me, I'm quite capable of opening doors myself. I just closed it again and said, work away. We were brought up to hold doors for people, whether it be a woman or an elderly person, but some people are just pure ignorant, he says. You see, you run the risk of, when you do it, being abused. Yes, I would think that says more about a woman than it does about a man holding the door open. If we're all equal, though, why should I hold the door for a woman? Why shouldn't she hold it for me? Or why well, should I give up a chair? You know, this ongoing yeah. thing of men sitting down on the chairs in the waiting room of the COMH, for instance. Okay. Should a man get up and let a pregnant woman sit down? Well, I, I would think so because, well, unless a man is uh, using a stick or a cane or something himself and needs to be able to sit down, a pregnant woman is more likely to need to be able to sit down. I mean, take my case, I'm vision impaired and when I get on the bus, it's very difficult for me to stand on the bus. And I'm always very grateful when someone... Uh, yeah, and that's me. right. And that- a man, you know, it could be a girl, it could be an old woman, and they get up and off of their seat. But I know, but that's need. right. But that's right and proper to do. You're visually yeah. impaired, so you you know you you need a kind gesture, and that's a lovely thing. It's an act of courtesy to to you. But for a man to get up and get to move from his seat so a woman can sit down, isn't that insulting to the woman? Like saying saying, "Oh, you poor misfortune. You're a woman. Here's my seat. I'm a big burly man, and I'm gonna do the right thing and mind you." But isn't that assuming that you know what the man is thinking? Why would he do it then? Why would he do it? <clears throat> Just as an act of kindness. But he wouldn't get I up and let him... As an act of kindness. Yeah, but do you see what I'm saying? He, he wouldn't get up and give the seat to another man. Why not? Why would you want to do that? I wouldn't get up well, and let another... I'd let an elderly man sit down if I was him, but I wouldn't let... It, you, I, you would get up for another man. Another man? Same age as me. If you felt he needed to ah, sit yeah, down. He did it, yeah. I mean, obviously you would do that. But why would we get up and let a woman sit down when we wouldn't get up and let another man sit down? Apparently women find that... Um, 
they find it sexist. Well, I think holding a door open for someone and pulling a seat out or giving up your seat for them, they could be seen as two different things, really. Um, you know, if you're giving your seat up for someone, usually it would be to give it up for someone who needs it. Ah, yeah, no, accept, yeah, good point, I accept that. But it's not somebody who would be in need of it. It would be determined by their sex. Thanks for that. Let's see what Seamus has to say on the matter. Seamus. How are you doing, Neil? What do you think? Um, do you, yeah, I, I think chivalry is dead, all right. It's definitely killed by the feminist. I had a very embarrassing experience actually once, about a few years back. There's a young woman um, struggling to get the, the, uh, the stroller with her toddler in it um, onto the bus. And uh, I think she had a couple of children with her as well. And she was just she was clearly struggling to try and pull it back up, you know, reverse kind of the, the wheels in and so on. So I just, just offered the help. So I, I instinctively uh, grabbed the front of it and lifted it up for her and she refused. She kind of, she just kind of slays at me there and then, don't get your hands off that, I can do it myself was the response. I was very embarrassed though, because it, a bit of an audience there and people didn't know what to think. Like, so I was just kind of laid after two. But so what did they think? Except, what did they think except what an idiot she is? Surely. Yeah, it, it, it is very embarrassing for a guy. Like, I mean, I suppose we are of a certain age back then. We do live in a chivalrous society. Like, I'm in that, probably within that cohort, you know. Maybe know she mean. was just completely stressed. She could have been, but I did offer, like, I, I mean, I, I kind of made the move, as you do, in the, uh, the act of chivalry being what it is, you kind of tend to make the move before you offer, it, or you do the two in tandem generally. It's not like, would you like me to do this? Yeah, and then do it. Like, you don't, like, ask somebody, would you like me to open the door? This will be more condescending, really. You kind of do, it's, it's, it's the act, I suppose, in tandem with the, the thought. Like, but uh, it's definitely dead. It was killed by the feminists, unfortunately. You know, we live in a world of robots now. People can't say boots anything. Um... I mean, but, if you but, laugh at but maybe jokes, maybe it is right that well, maybe it is right that women stood up for themselves and said, "No, thank you. I don't want your seat. I don't want it's, you to open it's the all, door." It's, it's like everything. There's bandwagons and everything, really, Neil. You know, like you know, they take it too far. There's no, there's no drawing the line saying, "Well, you know, you can't paint everybody with that kind of brush." Like, but maybe uh, there are women who are very independently minded. You know. Very, very strong, will-powered women who really don't want to have a man condescending them. Okay, so uh, how's it, yeah, I suppose should they go around with a badge then to notify the public? I mean, you know, how awkward would it be for, like, a, say, a man in his sixties, for example, to to help another woman, even if she was in her forties or fifties? You know, just to offer, extend a hand of a, a generosity because that's what it is—just a quick uh, gesture to help someone onto a bus or open a door if they're struggling with something and just purely because they're female you know they, they turn around and react badly like should they be walking around with a badge on just to notify the public as to what we should and should not do well fair enough but the world you, is going you know has, have you That's changed bad, really. have you changed in your mannerisms now with regards to after that incident with the book I am cautious yeah but I mean in all fairness like another example will be you know the classic will be on the Lewis in Dublin or or um, you know the the the, the bus, whether no matter what county you're in, on a, on a public bus, like I, I have encountered a situation where I've seen a pregnant, heavily pregnant woman stand there in the middle of the aisle with young lads and and young girls just sit there, and there's no offer. There's no that's I suppose that's another form of chivalry, you know, it's respect for your elders or somebody yeah. who yeah, maybe yeah. in a certain predicament, like you know, a heavily pregnant woman. I'm not going to leave her stand there for half an hour while I'm on the bus for twenty minutes. I'm so have you got up and let a pregnant woman sit down? I, I have done it, yeah, and they have accepted. 
But I mean, I, what's harder to watch is... But do you, when you, do, when you did that, was there an element of gamble involved as to whether she might bite the head off you? Not really. I didn't think of it because she was pregnant. I, I, I didn't think so. Uh, but you wouldn't know. That's the thing you do try consciously, you know. It can be very embarrassing, like I have to say, it can be very embarrassing if you do a, 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 a chivalrous in public, you know. You have to be conscious more more so more nowadays. Well so would you say that audience. some men just now pretend not to see? Yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely an element of that. So when I okay. when I did make that move and I let the woman sit down, I, I did look around at sits. It's one of those one of those funny situations, really. You know, I looked around, but when I looked around at all the young men buried in their phones, uh, younger than me, half my age, standing there or sitting there, should I say, looking at the woman as, as she sat down after I offered the seat. But yet they look on and no moves. They live in a silent world where it's just don't do it. You know, okay, you, okay. You, you, you just pick up on this. Okay, hold 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 on there. If you, hold on there, if you will. I just want to bring Fiona in on the conversation. Here. Fiona, good morning. Hi, how's it going? Do you on? want to pick up on anything that uh, that Seamus has to say there? That chivalry is dead. It was killed by feminists, and he once tried to help a woman onto the bu- onto the bus with a buggy and got the head bit. Oh, off. I cu- I couldn't disagree more. I, to be honest with you, I would equate chivalry to kindness. You know, I I feel I feel for um, for Seamus there. It's Seamus, isn't it? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I feel for Seamus there. That was a terrible experience, but like you have to kind of like, you know, you need to kind of bear in mind maybe that lady was having a terrible time that day. Yeah. You know, like if she was going through town with a buggy, I'll tell you, there is nothing more frustrating. You're, yeah, you're apologizing. Yeah, it's apologizing to everyone. Me personally, I have two kids and I remember there was one day I was getting the buggy into the car um, in uh, Mahan Point and um, there was no parking spaces and a man jumped out of his car and grabbed my buggy off me and shoved it into the into the boot so that I'd get out and give him the space. You know, like, but, you know, I wouldn't hold that against every man in the world. Do you know what I mean? Um, was he yeah, helping like, you mean, there or was he hindering you, harassing you, what? Um, I, I suppose he was trying to help and he was probably under pressure to try and get inside himself, you know, yourself, but... It did come across as very aggressive, you know, kind of like, hurry up, woman, and get your buggy into the car. Okay, so if if a man in a car and a woman in a car are approaching from different directions, the same empty space, do I or am I encouraged to allow her the parking space? That's up to you, isn't it? Out of my out of my cold dead hand. Time of the year, like I'm getting up to Christmas. But I suppose, look, I, the, the thing is, my my point about chivalry that I'd like to make, are, you know, about etiquette and that sort of thing, is that you know, especially now at the moment, like with COVID and the two meter rule that we have to socially distance. I would stand back and hold the door for people. I would stand back and hold. Man. And I think there's nothing lovelier than anyone holding the door for me. Not to mind a man if it's another woman, anything. I what I absolutely loathe, my pet hate in life is when you're holding a door back, holding a door for somebody, and somebody comes through, and then suddenly there's a string of people come through, and next thing by the third person they're done, they've been saying thank you for holding the door. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, I just think like you know maybe people kind of need to look a little bit inwards and and you know try and be kind to each other like and holding the door is a lovely little kind act you know yeah that's that's fine if we're all opening doors and giving up chairs and seats for everybody yeah. but when it's a woman is it not is it not saying something about you as a woman being the weaker sex that I have to give you a chair that's feminism gone too far Neil I think that's the problem you know no you might call it feminism others who don't like it talk call it equality 
Uh, you know, uh, I <laughs> I think it's just very same as you go. No, no, no. Just I, uh, it, that's that's there and lies the problem. You know, should we, we should we should we be all going around with them little badges? You know, in public, say, well, I don't want this, or I want you to do this, or I accept this, or I don't accept that. It's a really tough one to call. Okay. I mean, anybody who acts chivalrous at the end of the day should be taken. Where, and the act of chivalry itself. Is do not the hold the door for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to say, can I just make a point? I hate oh, I hate holding doors. Uh, I get I get shot for this now, but I hate holding doors for people who just barrel through and don't say thanks. Yeah, that's very rude. Hang on, I understand. Marlies, Marlies, you have gone through. No, well, I know you have to take the gamble, the risk of the gamble every time. Marlies, hello. Why are you so angry? Because manners are a thing of the past. And, I mean, these women that are extreme, do they think they're men? I mean, I'd be delighted if someone held the door open for me. They usually slam it back into your face. But I've confronted one or two of them already. It was a lady one day coming out of the chemist that I was in front of her. I held the door open for her. She had a daughter about 12, 13 with her. Didn't say I know her end, and then I said to her, manners, I said, did you ever hear of them? So she kind of looked at me, and I said to her, and you're a great example for that child. Now, I don't care whether they th- think I'm a cranky old bee or what. I don't give a damn. A bit of courtesy. Another time I said to a man, Jesus, you're a gent. It's very rare. So what are they getting all insulted for? Because they feel as it's demeaning and condescending to ah, women who are being looked at as... Excuse me, no. It really maddens me. It's just the last bit of kind of um, gentleness, something. They're going too much, the other extreme. A little in the middle, like. Manners don't cost anything, do you know? Manners cost nothing. Thank you all for that. One eight fifty one zero four one zero six. My husband still opens doors to me, and for years when we were first married, he would open the car door for me. My son now opens doors for people. It's not done to undermine anyone or to show dominance over them. It's just old-fashioned manners. As long as it's not done in a condescending way, there's nothing wrong with being an old-fashioned gentleman. I still know people who, they're older than I am, some of them considerably older than I am, but in a social setting, they will stand up when a woman comes to the table or arrives late or it's a dinner appointment or whatever the case may be, they will literally stand up until the woman sits down and then they'll sit down again. Something quite cute about that, I think. Noreen says, I often hold the door open for others or I step back to let someone pass in a narrow space, regardless of gender or age or any other classification people would like to apply. I do it because it's simply an act of courtesy which says... Let me make your day a little easier. I know I always appreciate it when someone holds a door open for me and it always brightens my day. Eric says, I hold it open for everyone. Everyone. Out of respect. I've never had any complaints. Back after the break. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Oak Fire Pizza vouchers for our contributors there on the age of chivalry. We'd love to pick up on that tomorrow to get your thoughts on it. Is it dead? If not, should it be dead? Text 086-8104-106. Our phone lines are open now. We have these wonderful meat boxes. They'll feed you for the week, two of you. And also a one kilo joint of spiced beef in there as well from Tom Durkin Meats. You can... Uh, book online tomdurkermeets.ie and they're open in the English market and they're there for you and they have home delivery in the local area. Um, so uh, 
Um, also, if you wanted an example, Emily says, as to why hairdressers are closed, she says, hey, hairdressers are not an essential service. I actually realized this when I got a call that I'd been a close contact of a stylist who had tested positive for COVID-19. I then had to take two weeks off work and restrict my movements because of it. My entire family had to stay away from me. I've had uh, to have two COVID tests since and it's just not nice. Maybe that will answer the question why hairdressers are not an essential service. Our lines will stay open at one eight fifty one zero four one zero six. You can text 0868104106 and we shall pick it up in the morning. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.